did we did I miss all the media server discussions the last couple of weeks completely? Um, we have had some on and off. It's sort of like a project I have been working on because I want to do a review for the Linux Action Show, and I've been kind of going through uh, Open Media Vault, uh, Rockfiler, of course, FreeNAS. I'm familiar with, so I kind of just I ha- I'm bringing some of that into it without actually currently. I mean, I currently use FreeNAS, but I'm not currently installing it. Um, and OpenFiler, I believe. Did I say OpenFiler? Well, that's Media the one we agreed you weren't going to look at. Uh, and which has all been whittled down to Open Media Vault, just simply based on looking at either the fact that what their technology stack is, or or how long they've been since they've been updated, or what Wimpy's been uh, poking me about that's gotten me excited. You know, all those things factor in. But actually, legitimately uh, looking at it all, it seems like Open Media Vault has the has the best trajectory and long term sustainability for a project like this, which is exactly what I want for my file server, and I like the folks behind it, and I like the whole stack, and I like the community, so Open Media Vault is the winner, so now that's the one I'm going to focus on for the review, and I have a basic, basic setup on a NUC right now, uh, an i7, um, older generation NUC, but it does have USB 3.0 attached to a 3 terabyte RAID 1 disk setup over USB 3.0, uh, and that's also connected to a... Uh, uh, um, a uh, what are those called? A UPS, which I'm hoping to test, uh, like, uh, Open Media Vault support for that, which I haven't gotten to yet. I haven't actually hooked it all up It yet. supports that. That's how I run it. Yeah, and I want to just test that all. And then I also plan to test how much power it draws and all of that stuff. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 159 for August 23rd, 2016. Unplugged, your weekly Linux podcast that's broadcasting from all over the world, right here, right now. My name is Chris. And I'm Angela. Hello, Angela. Hello. It's great to have you in studio. Angela will be joining us this week to keep us grounded, to give us the new user's perspective, but fear not, Mr. Payne's reporting in from the field on location. Hello, Wes. Hello, everyone. It's good to be here. Hello, hello. So we have a great show lined up today. We got some big open source project updates to give you. Of course, Linux Con's going on. There's a bit of interesting tidbits that have came out of that. A couple of gentlemen from the Elementary OS project have stopped by to tell us what they've got cooking. Later on in the show, I'll tell you about some of my woes. I know I love myself the rolling release, but I think I finally got bit this morning in the worst way possible. I'll tell you about that coming up in the show. Then later on, Libre Vault. It promises to replace BitTorrent Sync and SyncThing, bring the best of both of them to one GPL3-based project. What is it, and why do we keep talking about it, and is it actually feasible? Libre Vault gets a little test today, and we'll give you our report. And then later on in the show, the new version of Mar- Android's out. Marshmallow? No more. It's all about that nougat now. I've got it loaded. I'll give you my first thoughts and why I think it's damn near time I switch to Ubuntu Touch. That's right. That's right. I'm actually, you know, the thing is, every now and then you got to reassess, and uh, that's the phase I'm at, so I'll share that with you guys. But first, we got to bring in our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Oh, oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, oh, no. I'm, powerful I, stuff today. Oh, I feel kind of violated almost. That was, <laughs> oh, 
You all right, Ange? That is a room. <laughs> that is a room. All right. So you guys have all heard the big news today. Microsoft's got you scratching your heads with the announcement of PowerShell coming to Linux. GNU slash Linux is now the home of PowerShell. First, it started with .NET. And then, of course, the next domino to fall was the .NET-based PowerShell. Microsoft obviously reaching out to system administrators that have to manage Windows boxes from Linux boxes and Azure enthusiasts. But I have to tell you, every time Microsoft makes a move like this, I kind of sit here and go, what's next? What is next? It started really with .NET and then Visual Studio Code and now this. And I, I thought for a second here and I thought, holy, holy crap. Did Microsoft just become one of the biggest proprietary companies in the world to figure out how to make money on open source? Oh, that's a thought. They, they kind of. Right. Don't we, we always talk about how do you make money on open source? Meanwhile, Microsoft comes along and they figure out how to, how to actually sell software as a service via Azure and then how to use open source as sort of its backup dancers to bring people into its platform and generate revenue. Who would have thought? Microsoft. It's, it's fascinating to watch them do this. Wes, have you messed at all with PowerShell? Uh, you know, I've, I've written some things uh, back in the dark days when I had Windows machines to support. Thankfully, not anymore. You know, <laughs> and it's, a re- it's kind of an interesting environment. You get all the .NET goodness. You're passing, you know, a lot of people talk about how cool it is to pass objects around in the pipeline. It's kind of got a neat, you know, it, you get like class-based things. You have all the access to the .NET stuff. And at the same time, you have a kind of a, what you might call function composition, where you can pass things to each other. You don't have to parse text. You know, you can just get properties of objects. So that's neat. But personally, I'm kind of more interested in Python or other things like that. Uh, and I don't see that mm-hmm. much of a need. But but for interoperability and working with Windows tools, definitely it's it's far better than the Windows command line. Uh, Mr. Tanil there. Has to totally agree with um, with Wes. Like, what's the point? Python exists. Bash exists. As a well, been, I don't. I don't need. You PowerShell. know, I think Ange could tell you. What, so, Ange, picture this. Picture it's me. We were just talking on the pre-show back when back, the bad old days when I had to use Outlook under Crossover Office. Mm-hmm. I would do whatever it took to be able to manage the Windows systems I was responsible for from a Linux desktop. Yes. And for me, if I could have had a a Linux compatible Windows automation tool where I could have wrote scripts for Windows systems from my Linux box, I totally would have jumped on that. Yep. And so I think that's who it's for. But I kind of agree. Go ahead. Ansible? Yeah, I know. Right. And I think that's where – I think that's why this move is necessary for them to keep this tool relevant. I Great. So it's doing what Microsoft have always done. It's reacting. It's not being this trailblazer that you make them out to be. It's reacting. I don't know if I mean to make them out to be a trailblazer so much as I am sort of in awe of the fact that they keep doing this and I, and I just don't know where it's going to end. That's, sort that's, of the, that's the story that fascinates me about it. I think you have to acknowledge that this is without a doubt about revenue for them and they wouldn't be doing it without it, without that motivation. They're not doing it for, um, they're not doing it for RMS purposes, right, Mr. Tunnell? Yeah, they're selectively listening to RMS. So like – Showing that you could get you could give away the software and then use the use the services to make money, like RMS has said for years, but then you know, also proprietary and everything else. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know what? In some weird kind of way, I think it's actually better for for a company like Microsoft that it's the bottom line that's forcing them to do this and not some moral rationale, because. Leadership, as we've seen at Microsoft, changes. 
board members can make things move around. There's corporate restructuring that's happened. There's many layoffs that happen at Microsoft. CEOs even come and go over time at Microsoft. And if it's a moral sort of community imperative that's driving them, that could easily change with the next CEO or the next board. Or you, you can't argue with the bottom line, though. Exactly. That's very well said. Yeah, it keeps a company it's, it's, like Microsoft in the game because their livelihood depends on it. It's also a good example of showing how the open source system, like this open source software works in a way that a lot of people say it doesn't because it, you can't make money off giving away the stuff. And like when a lot a of people, you mean like, like Microsoft, Microsoft has said, like Microsoft has right, said for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was referencing like people who are like uh, regurgitating what Microsoft says, but the fact that Microsoft is changing their tune is maybe a way to show to everybody else that, you know, it's, there is a reason why open source works. I don't know. Chris, I kind of think this relates uh, to my prediction that I made uh, long ago about Microsoft and Canonical and that. Because if you think about it, you know, uh, are, you, are, you pers- once, are you foreseeing a merger here, uh, a, a marriage of two companies? <laughs> yeah, especially after the release of Ubuntu 17.04, which you know will be the last in alphabetical order, and that it'll be Z. And then after that, because Mark's ran out of letters. He's going to call it good? Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> you know what? A double A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right, Mr. Lou. Maybe you're right. I've there's heard crazier theories. There's still ANC, which haven't been filmed yet. So there's a couple <laughs> more releases to go. Um, this week is the 25th birthday of Linux. Happy birthday, Linux. I'd play the jingle, but it would get us pulled down. Uh, and I know the Linux Foundation, as they do, likes to um, you know note the occasion. And they've noted a couple of things that are interesting. 13,500 developers from more than 1,300 companies have contributed to the Linux kernel since the adoption of Git made detailed tracking possible. Now, that is uh, something else. Huh? 5,000 developers from 400 companies have contributed to the kernel. Nearly half these developers contributed for the first time. The top 10 organizations sponsoring Linux kernel development since the last report include Intel, Red Hat, Lenaro, Samsung, SUSE, IBM, Renaz, or Reasonest, I don't know how you say that one. Google, AMD, Texas Instruments, and you guessed it, ARM. Oh, didn't hear Microsoft in there. <laughs> you know, they actually did show up on the radar for one year. Um, really? Yeah, they did. They were contributing to making uh, the drivers for Hyper-V. The rate of Linux development continues to increase, as does the number of developers and companies involved in the process. The average number of changes accepted in the Linux kernel per hour is point, or 7.8, which is up from 7.71 in the last report. What is kind of not really said here but is fascinating is, and I guess I'd kind of be curious to get the mumble room's take on this, predominantly the contribution to the Linux kernel is corporate sponsors, companies. Does anybody have any any qualms about the fact that predominantly all of Linux is developed by commercial companies trying to make money off Linux? Chris, this is kind of not related, but in order to – you know, to say happy birthday to Linux, I only have one thing to say, and I say it in the chat room a lot whenever he's brought up. All hail King Linus! <laughs> and the value of this is negative. Um, so, okay, go ahead, Mr. Bitten. And to celebrate, uh, this thing Linux Foundation told on their keynote, on Thursday people are going to have black tie or a penguin or a Linux-related shirt. <laughs> I wish we could have gone. Toronto, though, kind of made it unfeasible for us to go. But, yeah, they've been doing the keynotes. There is a live stream. And if you, you've been watching it. Yeah, at least one or two hours. I've been busy with work. But I watched so- 
the first ones at least. And anything jump out at you? Any kind of impressions you took away? No, I haven't really think that much about it. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I guess it hasn't struck you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I only had time to watch an hour was to busy and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was just a little expensive for us to go, but I would have liked to have attended. It's it's always fun to be able to go to those events. I did make it last year when they had it in Seattle. That was good. And it wasn't just too long ago. Uh, all right, so uh, we are going to chat with the gentleman from Elementary OS here in just a moment. They've got something pretty cool they're working on. And uh, you may have seen it go by if you've been watching the uh, Twitters or the Reddits, and uh, we're going to talk to him about it. But first, I want to talk to you about my mobile service provider, and that's Ting. Go to linux.ting.com to get a $25 discount off your first device. Or if you bring a device, you'll get $25 in service credit. Now, you could probably you could probably scrounge up a device because they support CDMA and GSM. You just go to their BYOD page and find out which ones are supported. They're on a mission to really make mobile simple. It's just your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. You just pay for them individually. What you use is what you pay for. It's $6 for the line, plus Uncle Sam's dirty take like he always does. <laughs> He's got his hand in your pocket, that Uncle Sam. And it's really straightforward. Your customer service is amazing. They've got regular human beings that are geeks that you get to talk to. They've got an incredible control panel. And Ange, did you hear about the big news for Ting. There's big news afoot, Ange. They've dropped their data prices on Ting. Did you hear about this? Oh, that's great. Yeah, check it out. It's it's kind of a big deal. So uh, they've now gotten competitive across the board with just about damn near anybody. Pay for what you use wireless is a great model. No gimmicks, no leather jackets required. Data is now cheaper on Ting. From now on, prices look like this. Need more? It's just $10 a gig. That's what new customers pay. That's what current customers pay. It's simple. We like simple. See for yourself at ting.com slash rates. So they're doing $10 per gigabyte beyond the one gigabyte level. Really simple to understand. Ting's data pricing is obvious. And if you want to know more, they have a great blog post about it. Start by going to linux.ting.com. Check, check out any of their devices. Feature phones all the way up to real nice Cadillac devices. In fact, if I recall, they're doing a giveaway of, yeah, the Galaxy S7 Edge. Oh, man. Oh, man, 3,600 milliamp battery, Arduino 430 GPU, 4 gigabytes of RAM, 5.5-inch quad HD display. <laughs> and they're giving it away for free. You just got to subscribe. Making me drool, Chris. Making me drool. Wes, it's like the Cadillac. It's the Cadillac, Wes. Woo. You got to subscribe to their Ting account on YouTube. Simple, simple, simple. And then comment on their unboxing video and uh, do that in the next three days. So think about that. You subscribe to their channel. You comment on the video. And by the 26th, you could get a free S7. They do this a lot, too. So it's, it's worth doing if you want a free phone because that's not going to be a huge group. And this is going out to a lot of folks that could act on that. So I would jump in. See if you could get that free phone and then let me know. I would, oh, man, I'd be so jelly. Free S7 on Ting. There's nothing better. You take some of the best phones, you put them on the Ting network. It's a match made in heaven. Pay for what you use. They don't get in the way of the updates. I've got the Nexus 6P, and guess what? I'm already running Android N. Ting doesn't play that game where they get in the way of your updates. They get you basically a dumb pipe. If you want to use it for data, go ahead. You want to use it to make calls, Ting don't care. They're honey badger, and that's what I love about it. They just get you connected. Linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring your Unplugged program. And thanks to all of you guys out there for visiting. That's what keeps us on the air, linux.tinger.com, and then, uh, you know, maybe go get yourself an S7 and then make me totes jelly. I would love that. So, uh, Lewis and Fabian are joining us today from Elementary OS, and they're going to talk to us about 
a little hack fest they're trying to put together in Paris. In fact, they've raised an Indiegogo page to try to get some funding going to make this thing possible. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome to the show. And I don't know if you guys want to fight it out between you, maybe to the death, Kirk and Spock style, and tell me which one of you wants to start with why an Indiegogo page for a hack fest? Yeah, I think I'll take that one. Go ahead. Uh, We currently raise funds on our website. And that mainly goes to the elementary employees. And those funds are pretty tied up with paying the employees. So we thought it would be a good idea to raise the money for the Hackfest separately. So we don't cut into the money we need for the employees. And Fabian, you're located in Paris, right? No, I'm actually located in Switzerland. Oh, okay. But because the event is in Paris, we put that I as see. a place. There. I see. Um, and so the uh, w- uh, what's going to take place at a Hackfest like this? Is this sort of the kickoff for the next version of Elementary OS? Sort of get everybody together in one room and, and brainstorm and begin writing code? Yeah, that's the idea here. We want to brainstorm uh, what we want to do for the next release. Uh, but also look at a few things we already have on our bug tracker, maybe, and maybe do a little bit of finishing work on Loki. Okay, it depends. We have to see. Do you uh, plan to have any uh, any kind of like report or summary or uh, anything anything interesting for people who do support you to see what awesome things come out of this hackfest? Yeah, we are planning to do a blog post on it at least. Um, not sure what will be in it yet, but well, right, great. So you're raising funds for this hackfest, but is attendance free, or will there be a sign-up page where a fee is paid? Actually, and I think that's a clear point to make to kind of for people to understand. It's not necessarily for people to attend. It's not like a like a fest or an event, is it? It's not necessarily something that's closed, but it's um something where currently there's just a gist that people are coming commenting on and it's just sort of getting people organized who are going to pop in but this is a four-day thing so the people that are staying over are just elementary people who have been pre-organized okay so you're right that it's not totally open as such it is sort of you need to ask to attend man i wish we had somebody we could send uh so um I don't, I don't know, maybe if we want to give uh, Lewis a chance to jump in. Uh, you know, I, I've read some of the comments, guys, and uh, like on some subreddits and things like that, and people just don't seem to grok the value in you guys doing this. Why not do a Google Hangout? Uh, I, I guess, you know, and I'm looking at it right now. You guys launched it yesterday, and you're already doing pretty good. You've got 26 backers. Almost five, $493 U.S. have been, really, uh, have been raised and you have a real reasonable goal of 1800 I'm almost surprised to see you haven't popped it yet. And I kind of wanted to give you guys a chance to sort of explain why sort of a in-person meeting is actually important to the process. Louis, do you want to jump on that one? Uh, sure. Um, well, historically, we haven't sort of had much of meetings going on in the European community. I think there was some things that have been attended in Germany. But that was a case of people who are actually employees of elementary being flown over from America. So this will be the first time that that sort of group of people have actually met each other. 
Previously, we found that when the uh, sort of American siblings of that community have got together, they've done they've got a ridiculous amount of work and some very long-standing stuff sorted out over the <laughs> course of a few days. Just because it's so much faster to be talking in person, and you can just show someone your screen instead of needing to screenshot it and upload it somewhere yeah. and post it yeah. and have a discussion about that. It's yeah. so much quicker to do that in person than it is to do that online as you do normally sure and sure. um, even when there's only two or three people meeting up uh we've seen just there'll just be a flood of stuff suddenly get fixed and you can just tell it's all just coming off of them typically and uh there's there's that there's like the actual code that gets created or the documentation or the project outline but wimpy i i, I kind of want to throw it to you just for a moment because I think you'll agree with me, there's also an, an energy or an enthusiasm that sort of gets created and then shared amongst the team when you have an in-person meeting that translates to actual productive work. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. So I haven't met Fabian or um, Lewis, but I did meet three of their colleagues at the Snappy Sprint um, a few weeks ago, and that was uh, uh, Daniel, Cortan, and Cody. And prior to that, I'd got a passing a, a sort of more or less um developer acquaintance with cody and i kind of knew of daniel but didn't really know him mm-hmm. and through the course of that week although we were focused on um snappy stuff during the day out out of the the sprint you develop some personal relationships and some friendships and some understanding as to who these people are that you're uh, trying to communicate with that outlives that brief period of you being in the same room together Mm -hmm. and now means that we have a much easier way of communicating with each other over the internet having spent some time in person yeah it makes those text chats um easier to parse because you have a personality model to apply it to yeah and and i absolutely see the value in elementary crowdfunding a get together like this because actually getting people in in the same place together isn't only productive but it builds those relationships those working relationships and those personal understandings that really bind a project together so i I'm all in favor of mm-hmm. of what elementary are doing here and mm-hmm. I think that crowdfunding not just these kind of activities but crowdfunding in general is the financing model for independent open source projects for the 21st century. Why do you think that? Because it works. You don't have to ask for lots of down payment and investment from individuals. What you're looking for is small, affordable amounts of money from lots of people. And and you can do an awful lot with that. Um, And I think that that model works very well. There's certainly a place for um, corporate sponsorship and corporate led, you know, projects and um, governance and things like that. But for the independent projects, I think crowdsourcing is, you know, it's still fairly new and in its infancy. And I think people are still finding their way with the blend and how to do things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, different people need to explore the options and find out where it works where it's unsuccessful and then refine that and reproduce it in the future 
So, uh, and perhaps Fabian or Lewis, if you guys, I'm I, um, I'm noticing something you're doing, and it, and Wimpy just totally touched on it perfectly. That blending of of funding for open source projects. So the, the best model I have is Jupiter Broadcasting. We have sponsors like you just heard from, and we have Patreon. And we blend the two to sort of balance out not only multiple revenue streams, so if one dies, we don't die as a company, but two, so we can sort of leverage one to build projects up. Like, for example, we have something coming soon that we're relying on the the crowdfunding to actually finance the creation of this thing to make it viable, So that, and, and which is is really great because there's no outside influence on creating this new thing. But it's not it's not just one or the other. And I think it was Fabian who said one of the things they're doing here. Ooh, a little ambiance there. I like that. One of the things Fabian said they're doing here is we use the traditional funding model we have to pay full time employees. And because this is something sort of above and beyond what we normally do, we're going back to our user base and saying, please help us here. Uh, do you guys want to touch on at all? Why why break it out like this? Is it is it is it mainly down to. Uh, things are pretty tight and it's hard to raise funds. So when you want to do something big like this, are you going to the user base hoping that they'll that the same people who may already be funding it will go above and beyond? Or are you hoping that new folks will come into the fold? Uh, Fabian, do you want to take that? Yeah. Um, the reasons for this are probably both. Um, we do want new users to contribute who maybe didn't comp- contribute when they first got elementary hours. Mm-hmm. Like they've maybe, maybe they changed, like they've been impressed by now. Yeah. Or also get the users that are using it and liking it to directly impact uh, changes now because getting together like that will certainly help mm-hmm. push the next release out, out faster. So I, I, I just want to vo- avoid... Uh, I guess vote with my own wallet here. Uh, by the way, Ange, um, <laughs> I backed it today. Uh, I threw him some just a little bit of money. Uh, this this they, so they have oh, yeah. the Indiegogo Indiegogo campaign, which we will link in the show notes. The Elementary Hack Fest in Paris. I threw him some money just because, on my own professional experience, I can tell you absolutely that. First of all, eighteen hundred dollars is a ridiculously low amount for what you guys are doing, and and a, what the value of what you're doing is is easily ten thousand. $20,000 because it's not just about getting there. If you guys if you guys literally did nothing but bullshit and hang out the entire time and didn't write a line of code, the value for the end users of having a tighter-knit team that likes each other more, that has more passion, compassion for each other and understanding of each other will translate to a distribution that is supported by that team for longer, that has a higher level of passion that goes into creating the software, that has better communication understanding amongst the team members, that is likely easier to resolve issues amongst the team members. It is so super fundamentally value for, valuable for the long-term viability of this distribution that it just... I don't personally run it, but our son runs Elementary OS, and for me, it was a no-brainer to back this because he's gotten more than a year of use out of the last version of Elementary OS. I can't wait to upgrade him to the next version of Elementary OS, and for for that for that alone, it's worth investing in that team to just keep making great stuff. And even if I only use it on one of the many computers in all of the computers that I take care of, it's absolutely valuable. And if you're an Elementary OS user or you kind of grok what they're going – it's maybe worth throwing them a few bucks because they have a, f- a flexible goal and they've reached 27%. And I, I, gotta be, I, I would love to see them get $5,000 because $1,800 yes. is not enough for what they're doing. 
you know, and it's kind of our way. Some of the people, you know, elementary has got got a, a great desktop experience. That's something Linux, you know, we're really fighting for. And the other companies out there that are, you know, making these competing products, uh, you're, they're absolutely paying for team lunches and outings and going to conferences. So if this is a small way the open source community can contribute back and get the same kind of experience, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, guys, anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? And, you know, best of luck to you. We'll have a link in the show notes if people want to lazy web it. Uh, not really, but Good. thanks for your contribution. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, no problem. I'm I'm glad to back it, and I hope you guys can pull it off. And uh, if I if if anything if anything, I would love to hear an update from you folks down the road because you're always welcome to join us in the mumble room and let us know how it's going. Especially because uh, one of the things we try to do here on the Unplugged Show is give every major viewpoint a good chance and a platform to to voice it and. Uh, I don't think elementary OS is the distro for everyone, but for the folks that love it, I think they are super happy to have it. And I think it's incredibly important that there is a team out there that is looking with such a critical eye at how to build a great desktop environment for Linux users and how to really make a product that is that is whole from beginning to end. And that's something that's desperately needed in the open source community. And so that alone, I think, makes the project valuable, even if I'm not a daily driver of it. And so best of luck to you guys. And I hope people out there, even if they're not a daily driver of it, see some of the value there. So good luck. And uh, hopefully we'll hear a report of how it went in Paris if all goes well. Okay. I got to talk about something. Uh, if If you're a patron, you might already know about this. But if, uh, if you're a Linux user, if you like Linux Unplugged and Linux Action Show, then I may have something that pertains to your interests. Tomorrow, actually, as you listen to this, it should be available. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> we have a new show that's launching on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. What? I know. Whoa. I know. I'm super excited about it. I'm really, really stoked. Um, we're, we're trying out a bunch of new technology on the back end, so it's incredibly fun from that standpoint. Uh, it is really something that we have been kind of percolating for, I don't know, um, two years, and it just sort of has all kind of finally come together in a really, really, really slick, I really enjoyed it, and the response has been super, super good. Uh, by, called, and by response, he means from the patrons, the patrons that yeah. have subscribed and got yeah. to see it and know yeah. about it, what, a week ago? Yeah, I, I, we, I released it early last, uh, late last week to the patrons. Um, and so, yeah, the show is going to be called. Are you ready for this? I'm going to reveal it for the first Wait, time. Music, soundboard, oh, something. Something? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no? Wow, Beautiful. no. Not that? No? Was that the wrong one? Sorry. Okay, how about this? Triumphant. Uh, breaking news on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. We are about to reveal the new show. Sources familiar with the matter tell us it's going to be called. Get ready. Dun 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 dun. User Air. User Air, and uh, it is something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. Think of it like this. Everyone makes mistakes. We're just going to make great show content out of them. Insightful. It's going to be a little bit um, – it's not going to take itself too seriously, so it'll be a little irreverent, irreverent I guess. And uh, we'll take sort of the weekly issues from the community as Linux users ourselves, mistakes we've made, and also just things we're doing throughout the week. It is a relaxed, enjoyable talk show. The first episode is out. It is Noah, myself, and making his network debut, The Beard, Mr. Rekai, as no the third way. host. Yep, That's yep, amazing. Yep, yep, it's true. And uh, it's great. And it starts out good, and it stays strong the entire episode. 
And I've, I've really enjoyed recording it. We're using a bunch of new technology to do it, not only on the, on the recording aspect of it, but also on the publishing end of it. And it's all Linux-based. And so uh, episode one, you can go check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com, user air one. We talk about a, kind of a smattering of things, uh, my experience with Linux on the MacBook and uh, getting No Man's Sky working. But also uh, we talk a, a, a quite a bit about tiling window managers and Noah's attempt to, to get into that whole space and sort of my issues about it. We finally give you a Tiling Window Manager review, which I think turned out really great. New features that are coming to JBot and some of the code that we've been writing to make that possible. And uh, Noah has recently got into development. And we uh, talk about that. We talk about developing Python and Ruby. So the whole show, show. it's about an hour long, and it just was, turned out great. So you can check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Brand new show for you Linux users. It's called User Air. And... Uh, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. So on last, are we going to be, be uh, expecting to see Xmonad? <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, I think you'll have to watch. You'll have to listen to the episode or watch it. But I think he ended up going with Awesome, and uh, he's oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 his review review was really interesting. Kind of got me my interest peaked. So yeah, there you go. I'm excited, and yeah, the patrons the patrons have got it, and we've gotten a hundred percent positive feedback. On it so far, which what is an really exciting great. thing! It's like a you know once in a every few years thing, a new JB show. Yeah, yeah, and it's super fun for us to do whole new tech to do it. Um, there, there was no Mac, no Mac Touch the entire process, which is really Ooh. fun. And uh, we used uh, some some backend scripts that we're hoping we can work with the folks. They're really great uh, team over at Pod Publish <laughs> uh, to integrate some of the cool things that we're working on with. We'll see. Uh, so yeah, it is it is slick, and um, if you're a commuter or uh, if uh, you uh, if you consume us via YouTube, it's out right now. There's RSS feeds you can subscribe to it. The, all of it's published. It's in iTunes. It's in the Google Play Store. It's all ready to go. We got everything ready and loaded to go. Although we do need to get Aaron to update the uh, drop down menu and the show menu thing. Okay. But yeah, so I'm very excited. I listened to the pilot episode. And let me. Uh, I was actually there for it. Uh, yeah, live, yeah, the secret live, the secret, be- live was yeah, the awesome. sneaky live stream. Yeah, However, thank you. I, I do have a suggestion. Mm-hmm. You no, know, considering it's more of a, a, you know, a loose conversation based show, why don't you include the mumble room in on it? Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Uh, I'll tell you what. The audio quality of the show is like nothing else we've ever done. I mean, it is it is far and beyond anything we've ever recorded before. It like I like I was saying earlier, the new audio, the new, one of some of the new technology we're using is also a uh, um, a technology stack that uh, that automates double ended recording. Which, for if you if you know what that means, that's kind of a big deal for us, and that kind of makes it harder to do mumble, but. We do appreciate a good technical challenge, so it's it's not with it's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, I don't know if this would work to give you a sample in the show. That might be kind of weird, um, <laughs> but I will give you an I'll give you a little sample of what the audio quality is here. Ideas. If you take a more skeptical approach, then when in a couple months you end up running a tiling window manager, I'll just have more fun saying I was right. So as somebody that's run a tiling window manager in the past, uh, I'm going to say that's not true. <laughs> that, <laughs> because that won't have more fun? No, that, that Chris is not going to end up liking it. It just doesn't suit the, the style of desktop that he is used to. Tell, tell me – t- okay, let's start with this. 
in the same way that I both gave you both credit for being able to evaluate an operating system from a completely neutral, no bias standpoint. Let's try and do that with with desktop environments. And for everyone out there, that's there. I can. I'll st- stop it there. I'll tell you one of the things that also I really like about this show is I'll just say now. I don't know if I, I'll really ever mention it in the show. So you only really know if you ever listen to one fifty nine of Linux Unplugged, probably. But a secret of this show is I'm going to edit it a bit. Uh, so with, with most of our shows, they're all um, live to tape, if you can call it that, live to disc. And what you get is what you get. Uh, we don't generally edit these at all, and that's how I've done it for a decade. Um, now that's going to change. Uh, with, uh, with user error, from time to time, I will cut it down. I will make it more refined. I will take the more insightful and intelligent things we say and focus on those and sort of cut out some of the extra. Um, I haven't done – it's not heavy-handed. So the original episode of User Error, episode one, was an hour and 14 minutes long, mm-hmm. the raw recording. Mm-hmm. The published version is like an hour and three minutes. Yep. It, is, that, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you yeah. go. So it kind of gives you a sense of – I took some stuff. I just tightened it up. I made it, I made it so that way – Hopefully, we keep your intention, your attention, and and everything we say in there has a good intention behind it. And so that's the that's the idea with user error is it's got a little different feel. It's a little more relaxed, a little bit more um, intentional, and it's it's definitely one of those shows where we're gonna sometimes go down a rabbit hole. We're gonna sort of let give ourselves license to just. Let people who are passionate about Linux and technology have the floor from time to time. And, and I'm really excited about where we're going to go with that because the combination of that freedom but yet tightening it up and making what the end product is really something that's solid I think is going to be incredible. So that's User Error Episode 1. It's out right now. You can subscribe to it. And uh, I'm very excited about it. It's gotten 100% positive feedback so far. Mm-hmm. You can be the first person to crap in my punch bowl if you like. <laughs> <laughs> and a big thank you to Rikai for finally, after all of these I years. I know, it is kind how of many, crazy. It's, it's been... It's at been, least six or seven. No, at more least. than that. More than that. It's got to be, I, I think, eight years since... Wow. Yeah. And you know what? He's brilliant. So, <laughs> it's, 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 I've been wanting... I, you know what? I thought from the day we set up the studio, I thought, one day, I'll get that guy on mic. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually, eventually, I get everybody on mic. Eventually, everybody that's in my daily life ends up on microphone or on camera. It just seems to be the way it goes. So that's out now. And thank you to our patrons who uh, funded it to make it possible for us to, to create a show. And the first question that didn't come to our mind is, how do we make it sponsorable? How do I sell this? The question was, what's the audience going to want to listen to? And I think that's huge. Um, what is it, Ange? Breaking news here? Yeah. What do we got? Oh, Mr. Wimpy, go ahead. Um, so I just hit play and I noticed that you've got audio spectrum analysis mm-hmm. running yes. against a still image. Is that produced using FFmpeg or something else? So uh, yes and yes. Uh, it is – there's a – and Rika would probably be the guy to talk to about this. Um, but uh, what, we, what we found was there was a, uh, a Python GTK application that uses FM, FFmpeg and I think AV Convert or something on the back end. Uh, it needed some updates because it was built for like Ubuntu three, four years ago. And it uses, and it like, uses a, like a Ubuntu's old – hello. Hello. Who is that? Who is that? Mr. Mike. You got, yeah, thank you. Uh, it uses Ubuntu's old FFmpeg libraries and stuff like that. But Rikai made some changes to one of the main Python scripts and it fired right up. And it gives me a GUI to input the file and the background and the text and then generates the video file. 
Um, and what we want to do is integrate that eventually into Pod Publish, I believe. So they, yeah, so there you go, Wimpy. Uh, Rika, I just linked you the uh, plugin. <laughs> yep, perfect. Uh, and in Python, oh, that's just perfect, isn't great. it? That's and, great. And I, yeah. that's, I guess that's the other thing to kind of touch on here is if everything goes swimmingly, uh, user error will be hopefully helping make podcasting on Linux easier, m- even more automated and a little visually richer, and uh, that's one of our goals too. So it's super fun to be working on a project like that that also has some wider community. And some, yeah, just pioneering it, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was so happy when I found Pod Publish, and, and then the fact that it's a snap, Wimpy, really was sort of the, the final nail, if, if you will, because it meant that I could produce the entire thing for my Apollo uh, under Arch. So thank you for snapping that up and and uh, continuing that project. Now, did you want to talk about how often it will be released? So all? our plan is uh, Wednesday morning over at Jupiter Broadcasting. Um, we'll see if that goes because, again, it's, since it's kind of experimental technology, things could break. Uh, but, you know, we kind of have a whole as far as technical content on Wednesdays. Right now on Filter comes out Wednesday evenings. BSD Now gets recorded during the day, but it doesn't get released. So we kind of have a hole there in the schedule. If you are a Linux user wanting some tech content and not politics, there's nothing really there for you on Wednesdays. And so our plan is to release it Wednesday mornings if all works to uh, to make it available. So that way on Sunday you'll have Linux Action Show. Monday you have Coda Radio and Tech Talk Today. Tuesday you have Linux Unplugged. Wednesday you have User Air. Thursday you'll have TechSnap. Okay. And so then for those that like – joining live like the entire Linux Unplugged audience is <laughs> listening right now and participating in the mumble room, will it be ever recorded live or is I it all? I think so. I think so. It's, you know, it's interesting because they're two totally different shows, right? Mm-hmm. Because, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think so. I, we recorded the first one live. That's but don't how count on it, it, I guess. If, if yeah. you're thinking, oh, I'm going to catch a live one. I think we'll always do it live, but I'm just, you know, it just, I don't know if we'll always do it at the same time because the, 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 sure. the whole concept behind the show is I really want all of us to be in a chill mood when we record it. Sure. I just want us to be able to sit back and talk about stuff and not be stressed out. And that might not be possible for three people, but um, – and I, I hope in the future to have uh, Wes join us and bring oh, on oh, – Oh, yeah, yeah. that's exciting. And bring on different uh, JB hosts from time to time. And uh, so you'll be able to hear like uh, your hosts from other shows sort of get in on this show, which uh, with I'm hoping super high-fidelity audio quality. Everybody will have local recordings um, using uh, Zencaster for that. Which automates and Wimpy, if you guys, I don't, Wimpy, what are you, what are you using for the Ubuntu podcast for local recordings? Um, there's a utility called Audio Recorder, which is mm, yep, available yep, in a PPA, yep. and then Mumble so, for the real time chat. Yeah, so we yeah. use Mumble for the real time chat, and then the the sneaky feature of Audio Recorder is that you can set a time at which the recording starts. So because all of our machines are NTP synced, we agree we're going to start recording at. 2032 and 04 seconds Ooh. and all of our local recordings start at the same time so i've been i've been talking to josh and he's he's the gentleman behind zencaster with i think it's missing an e so it's sort of web web 2.0 name yeah and i don't know if you've had a chance to look at zencaster it's like a web rtc front end that does all it uh one of the things interesting in user error is Noah was slightly delayed from Rekai and I. Rekai and I are sitting here in the studio talking live. Noah was in Grand Forks and he had about a half a second delay. So the other thing we do is we start the recording. So audio recorder starts recording and then traditionally Mark counts us in with a three, two, one. And then when it would be zero, all of us say biscuits. 
because <laughs> of course because <laughs> and, and and then when and then we do when we do the edit you just line up everyone saying biscuits together and that accounts for those you know few hundred milliseconds of of jitter and it's mark um, that does the editing right uh it's either mark or i i'd say mark oh. does about 60 percent, and i do about 40 percent. Well, it, it varies week to week depending on who's busiest if you ever get a wild hair doing the lamination though <laughs> i think that was popey i think that was popey the lamination. Uh, yeah popey is chief laminator yeah wimpy <laughs> if you ever get the wild hair and you want to try zencaster it will put you out of business because uh it manages the time sync up and uh, it handles all of – it also does the VoIP aspects. So you don't have to use Mumble if you don't want, but you can just toggle that. And then it will post-process and level and gate all the individual tracks and produce one file for you at the end. Oh, it does the gating as well? It does. Yeah, wow. it does. Mm. Yeah. So I – it's not – you know, I – so me Because we do all that in post. Oh, that's what I do too. And I'm still doing it that way, but I'm beginning to run two versions and I, I, I ended up for the final – published version of user air i went uh, with zencaster's version of the mix okay uh i still uh, tweaked it a little bit marked and yeah. uh, we'll have a production <laughs> yeah. meeting, uh, also great. known as going out for a curry at the end of the year and we'll discuss <laughs> a a change in production <laughs> methodology it's Thank fun you. yeah i'll have the i'll have the creator on a future show he's working on a big release right now and after he's done i'll i, I plan to have him on unplugged or, or last to talk about what he's doing so, uh, Mr. Wes, you found that there was an update to a project we have covered in the past, and we just touched on it a little bit. It's Go- I think it's it's GNU GUIX. It's a package and manager. Geeks, I believe. Oh, Geeks. Is that okay? Thank you. Yeah. GNU Geeks, a package manager uh, that I, I think promises reproducible builds with everything. Am I right? Uh, can you remind me about what this is and why it's important? Yeah, uh, GNU Geeks is kind of interesting. They're they uh, they're similar to the uh, Nix package manager slash distribution, and both of them kind of promise a functional programming-like approach to package management. And like, so today we see a lot of stuff, you know, with Chef, Puppet, Ansible, um, you, you want systems that are reproducible, you want to have configuration management where you have some sort of, you know, declarative style so that you can specify, mm. I want these packages, I want these syscontrols changed, uh, you know, I want to be able to rebuild a host on, on command or spin up a new host in the cloud if you need one. Uh, but they kind of do it from a top-down approach where, you know, I can configure whatever on my Ubuntu machine and then have Chef run. And if I don't have Chef you know, know about or specifically managing resources, then those may not get managed. And they may be in a state that I don't know. It's very easy for kind of unknown things or weird state to creep in that way. So these programs, uh, Geeks in particular, they kind of go from the ground up where you have to specify in, in basically one config file all of the packages you want, all the settings you want. And they provide it in a way where it's uh, it's reproducible. Oh, I like and, that, and it, and it doesn't have a lot of side effects. It doesn't store a lot of state so that you you basically – it runs, it processes through this one file, and, and, and you is end the, up with a configuration of a system. And is the advantage to that, then it's super easy to replicate that to other systems? Yes. And so you get – you know they have a lot of dependency management. They it pretty much – the way they do it is kind of clever. They use a lot of symlinks uh, so that – you can have one of the things this enables is you can have multiple versions of you know what might cause conflicts in other systems. You can have multiple versions of the same package because um, when it builds it, it, it has a lot of temporary directories that are or not temporary, but they're based on a hash of the files so that they're unique per build. And if you've changed you know the dependencies or you've changed the compiler flags, then that will be in a different folder. Uh, and so you you really have to manually or not manually, but you really have to specify all your dependencies to get this right. But once you do. It means that you can have multiple versions. It makes it very easy to to reproduce, and it lets you know that you know once you've got it configured, you can move it wherever 
nothing will change. It will always be in that state. Huh. You know, um, so I got bit just this morning. It was rough, Wes. Uh, I sat, I woke up early and I thought I'm going to sneak out. It's, 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 it's the technique you learn when you have young children and you wake up before them rarely. And you're like, I've got, I've got an hour before they wake up. I used to do this all the time. And so the same thing happened this morning. I woke up an hour earlier than I expected and I thought, I just got a free hour. So I, wa- I walked out to the living room, fired up the laptop, went to launch No Man's Sky, bub kiss. Didn't start, wouldn't run, and I thought to myself, oh my, what did I update yesterday that <laughs> broke my game? And this is where I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I'd really love to be able to just pin the version of Wine and just – oh, just or have have this version of Wine installed just for this application. And I know there's – Exactly. There are tools to manage that specifically with Wine. But this is something at a package level I could achieve, right? Yes. And, you know, because of the way it works, you can even install it on top of your – a lot of people use it just, you know, you want the latest version of Emacs. And, you know, now we have some things like, you know, Snap packages, that sort of stuff. But this kind of has a different approach. And you can install this whole – kind of like a package source – you can install this on top of your existing um, Linux implementation. I think even just all from userland without root permissions, and then com- you know get all the packages that you might need built just for your user. Oh wow, wow! Yeah, and so they've just updated here. Um, now they're working on getting you can you can compile it from source. That's where you get a lot of the power. But they also have binary packages available. So they've been working now on one reproducible builds, which you know we've talked about before. A lot of projects are working on, yeah. and then two they're working on their own because of the way it's. Because of the unique properties of this distribution, uh, security updates are kind of hard. So they've been working on a technique they call grafting to keep this functional approach but allow you to have security updates easily applied without having to rebuild all of mm. your programs. Well, I love that. And and, and just super quick, reproducible, bu- reproducible builds uh, remind me why that's super important, even though I know I'm asking for the audience. You know, mostly you just want to make sure that the program that you're end up running as a binary really was compiled from the sources that you can inspect, right? So if you're running some, you, eventually, unless you're using something totally interpreted, you're running a binary at some point, uh, and it's all well and good to have access to the source code, but if you can't actually confirm that that right. source code would produce a bit-for-bit identical binary, then you really can't be sure that you're getting right. those advantages. So it's all about verifying that what you built on your system matches what the source code available for that upstream project is, or, or whatever it is you're installing. And that seems almost vitally important like it almost seems like has information you have to know in this day and age and it certainly would be you know it's one of the benefits of having access to the source and and free software and all the things right. that we talk about so why not leverage it because we have we with an advantage we have built in so exactly even though it you know it's not app image it's not snaps but it's still technically extremely interesting and that's why i think it's fun to talk about it here on the show and they have a new release and it's great because wes has been kind of following it so i thank you wes for bringing it to our attention again um, and we have it linked to the uh, LWN post. That uh, Go check it out up. and let us know what you think. And also, uh, like I was just saying, a heads up to those of you that are running on the development, quote-unquote, branch of Wine. And you may be running on that branch of Wine and not even knowing it because for some distributions, it's just the default branch of Wine they install. Uh, the new version of Wine uh, 1.9.17 breaks No Man's Sky, which is, in my opinion, and I, I apparently the, the entire internet disagrees with me, the best game in the universe uh, but it does work fine on versions 1.9.16 and 1.9.15. I've confirmed myself. So heads up, if you are playing No Man's Sky Under Wine, don't update like I did because that ruined my morning. 
I spent my entire morning fixing that. The yeah, entire that morning. I, I thought, you know, and it was, Wes, it's funny because my first thought was, well, maybe it's this MacBook kernel AUR package. Oh, right. Maybe it updated, you know. No, it wasn't that. It wasn't the NVIDIA driver. It was just damn wine. And it wasn't until I was looking for news for this show that I noticed that there was a new version of wine out that I went, oh, wait a minute. That's what it was. So it was in preparation for the show I discovered the problem. I, just a quick, super quick update on the MacBook Linux thing. I talk about it more in user error. Uh, Wes, I've done a couple of kernel updates in the meantime. Okay. Flawless, my friend. That is awesome. I, I, have, I, actually, I actually clocked it. Three-second boot time. It's Whoa. A, yeah, it's, it's, it's about seven seconds total because uh, X11 and the NVIDIA driver add about another three to four seconds to it depending oh, on the sure. day. But th- I don't know. Uh, could, you just, could you just super quickly, could you talk about how it's not, it's not using Grub, it's not using Lilo, we're not using Refine to boot on this MacBook. We're using the firmware bootloader and frickin' SystemD. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, you know, we just, uh, it used to be called Gummy Boot and then it got uh, eaten up by SystemD as so many things do for, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that later. Um, but it's just a really simple uh, bootloader for EFI systems, and so the Macs for a long time, the kind of one of some of the first machines to have EFI uh, enabled BIOSes, if you want to call them that, firmwares. Um, and so, because they already use that to boot the Mac OS X operating system, if you don't need a fancy menu to pick for them, and if you want Linux to be the default, and then have the option to hold the option key uh, to boot into Mac OS X when you need to, say for firmware updates or exactly the, the rare time I, you need exactly Photoshop, what I want, yep, um, then you can just. Uh, install it right to the fat partition that already exists that holds the EFI um, bootloaders uh, or you know, executables. Uh, and then it just writes a simple configuration file that sets it up for you. Uh, and then the firmware will just hit that default boot file. Mm. It will load the kernel and init RAMFS, and away you go. So just a couple of other notes, um, because I've always been a huge doubter of Linux on the MacBook, and I've always encouraged the audience not to do it, even though they constantly email in about it. Uh, I found two packages in the AUR that were great. One was like Fan Control D, or I can't remember Mac con- Mac Fan Control D. Or- Anyways, it's a background process. Yes, it's a daemon that runs in the background and actually manages the thermal management on the MacBook. So I'm not cooking the MacBook into hell, which was a problem. Oh, very nice. I- yeah, hugely nice, Wes. Two other packages. One that manages the uh, keyboard backlighting. Just uh, uses the ambient light sensor in the MacBook and automatically adjusts the keyboard backlighting just as mac os 10 does and then the last one that uh, has been also great is the same thing using the ambient light sensor to manage the brightness on the display just like mac os does uh, and there's a lot of usability wins right there it really is and um i i have to say if you have an old enough macbook i don't know about a new model i couldn't afford to i you know, <laughs> people are like people said i cheated because i tried it on a 2013 macbook instead of a uh, the, the subreddit, and Yeah, I saw it. You did? Yeah, they, I did. They wanted me to buy a new MacBook to try yeah. this. <laughs> I got to tell Like folks, we're made of money. Folks, if I was going to buy a new computer today, I, I would not be buying a MacBook. Nope. I would be I would buy a machine that just runs Linux out of the box. Uh, however, so you're buying a new MacBook, which is actually a three-year-old MacBook, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, why, true, yeah. that's actually why I thought it was a valid experiment was I think that MacBook, the one that I have, the 2013, is going to come down to sub easily sub-$1,000 prices in a month. And I think when that happens, you're going to have a lot more people looking at it for Linux. When you can buy the machine that I have, which is honestly a very nice computer, it is – I've been really impressed with the trackpad, with the keyboard backlighting, with the performance. But honestly, what what, what shocks me every time I open up the screen is that 15-inch Retina display with GNOME 3. It's beautiful. 
I've I've never seen a I've never ever in my life seen a GUI that looks that good. Even the XPS 13, which is my one of my favorite computers, which has a high DPI display, doesn't look as good. It really is amazing. It's too small. Yeah, it's exactly it. Yeah, it looks great on 15 inch. So there's some reasons to run it, but I would say if I was buying today, I would probably buy a computer from Entraware or System76 where it was preloaded, designed with to run Linux, or even the Sputnik edition from Dell, which is also you know meant to run Linux. But if you are in the position of coming across a pre-owned or you have an existing MacBook and you've been thinking about it, you've been on the fence, Anagros with the Linux MacBook kernel, which is in the AUR, which you have to build every time it updates, and a couple of those packages. Just search for MacBook in the AUR. It really, it really is a great experience. It's, it's yeah, I would, totally different. I'll just add that the Antigros installer even, it will do the systemd boot stuff for you, so it'll handle it right there. You uh-huh. just need to make sure you have, uh, as we talked about, you need to make sure you have the Wi-Fi drivers or uh, yes. USB Ethernet adapter. Yeah. And for more details on that, just listen to episode 158 of your Unplugged program. All right, well, enough about that. I want to talk to Wimpy about a Libre Vault, which promises to bring what I love about SyncThing and what I love about BitTorrent Sync to a GPL3 licensed open source project. And we've talked about it a little bit. Wes has done uh, some kicking of the tires. And like a gentleman, he even did a screencast of it so we could talk about it recently. And I chewed on it. I debated it. And then Wimpy convinced me I've installed it on my machines and we're going to talk about LibreVault, why it actually matters, why it could fundamentally, I think, change distribution of open source projects, and how it could enhance the Jupyter Broadcasting Network, and how it could replace Dropbox or insert name of sync application for you. It's really cool. It's really competitive. And in fact, it worked perfect on a DigitalOcean droplet. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code D-O-Unplugged, all one word, lowercase. You know, I've really boiled the pitch pitch for DigitalOcean down to one thing. If you need a computer that doesn't have a monitor most of the time, DigitalOcean.com. Really. If you want to just accomplish something on a computer that is super fast, has really great disk I.O. because it's all SSD and it's connected to the best internet connection possible, DigitalOcean.com. They use KVM for the virtualizer, running on top of Linux. They got SSD drives for the disk I.O. and you use our promo code DOUnplugged, you get a $10 credit. You can start in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans, $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. But actually, what? yeah. They break it down hourly. If you want to just experiment with something, you can spin up. I like like Wes for the show notes is like, here's Chris's wiki, Chris's wiki, Chris's wiki. Now, that reminded me of the fact that for just one day, I wanted Chris's wiki. Huh. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. And, I, and instead of installing all of that crud and pulling down all of those dependencies on my laptop and, and honestly doing it over a MiFi connection, uh, I just spun up a DigitalOcean droplet. And within about two minutes, I decided no good. Destroyed the droplet. I don't even know how. I don't even know what I paid for that because they charge an incredible price when you do it hourly. If you've got something you want to host for yourself to be fast, that is really not like something you want to share with the world. DigitalOcean has private networking where your DigitalOcean droplets can talk amongst each other that isn't over the internet, which is a really nice feature. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and India. Their interface, though. Oh, man. Back in the day when Angela and I, one of the things for the uh, consulting company that we worked for was they did VMware hosted machines. Remember like, remember how we sold hosted solutions? Whoa. Yes. To manage that, I had to run a virtual machine that ran Windows that then ran the VMware ESX management consoles just so I could manage the Linux machines 
inside our VMware infrastructure. And it was god-awful. Slow. Yeah, very convoluted. DigitalOcean changes all of it. I mean, it's not just a good UI for a desktop application. It's a freaking good UI, period, for a web app, for a, for a, for a native app. Don't matter. DigitalOcean's got the best UI I've seen to manage this ever. Then you combine that with a great, straightforward API. You can build applications around it, or you can take advantage of cool open source code already committed. Check it out. It's really straightforward. DigitalOcean.com. Just use the promo code DOUnplugged. Big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. And by the way, check out their block storage. That's the hotness right now. They've got the, the ability now to add storage as you need it at the block level up to 16 terabytes, all backed by SSDs. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code DOUnplugged. It's one word, lowercase. You apply that to your account. You get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean.com. Thanks for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So, um... LibreVault is promising to fill a very necessary hole in the open source sync ecosystem. And I kind of wanted to open it up to Wimpy to tell me about his experiments with LibreVault because, honestly, you're the one that's really got me looking at this again and again, Wimpy. Okay. Uh, well, it's early days. It is. So... Thank you. Yeah. In fact, it's so early days that uh, I think it's only packaged for Arch and Ubuntu at this point. Right. Possibly. It's definitely packaged for Ubuntu. Um, I've seen it in the AUR. Um, I've seen some discussion about the developer making static builds at some point so that um, we can run it wherever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you want to install from the AUR, you first have to have uh, QT5-tools installed, and then it'll build properly. But yes, it is in the AUR. So leave a comment in the AUR for the package maintainer so they can fix that. That's Mm -hmm. uh, that's what needs to be done there. and the project the project has been cooking for about a year now, um, but I only became aware of it mm, about two weeks or so ago. And like you, Chris, I was really smitten with the BitSync workflow. That key exchange mechanism worked really well for what I wanted to do. Um, and I've never really been satisfied with anything else that I've tried to replace BitSync with until this so what i've got running at the moment is a very small setup but on one of my desktop machines i have libre vault with the gui version running and i have a folder of stuff in a synchronized folder and then i've got two ubuntu servers that are in two different geographic locations and I just have the LibreVault daemon installed on those. And that comes with a systemd unit, which you can run either at the global system level or you can allocate to an individual user or many users. So I'm using it on a per-user basis. Hmm. Oh, nice. And, so, it's, and, and that's a, so you start the systemd service as that specific user? Yes. So in this case, you just... Uh, sudo system ctl enable uh user at at oh libre vault yeah yeah okay yeah and that does the business and then from the command line there's a couple of utilities you can run uh, libre vault daemon uh gen config which builds the boilerplate configuration file and pulls some details from your specific system like host name to give it the identifier for that node uh, you can derive 
the C type keys, so those read only keys or the the shareable read write keys rather than just the master key uh using gen key uh and um then it just has a JSON file for the folder configuration. Hmm. So uh, you can just uh, copy-paste uh, your uh, JSON folders.json from one box to the other, and when you then oh. start the um, uh, the daemon running, uh, it just synchronizes. And hmm. I've got those three machines running now, and I've just been poking at it and lobbing large files in and making lots of rapid changes to text files in three locations at the same time to see how it handles conflicts and things like that. And so far, so good. I want to, I want to, I want to address a couple of things and, and maybe somebody in the audience might be listening and thinking, why, why does something like this matter? So, um, I want to, I want to touch on, on two things. First of all, uh, and I want to come back to this one with Wimpy. Uh, I think it could be the next open source CDN, but first of all, when you have something like this working, what you accomplish is almost – it's like a transparent network file system. And once it's all set up and it's in that set it and forget it mode, you have any arbitrary folder that you choose on your system synced across all your devices. And that's huge. You make a, you make yep. a change in one directory and it immediately is available on all your other machines. And I, to give you – this is a very maybe, maybe off example, but the current example for me is uh, No Man's Sky. The configuration folder, I just want that configuration folder synced across many machines. In the Dropbox world, to accomplish that, I do a symlink and I move the actual folder into my Dropbox and then I symlink in the, in the configuration folder that folder. And then I, I kind of trick, I trick No Man's Sky into thinking it's accessing the folder when in reality it's hitting a symlink and going to my Dropbox. But with things like LibreVault, I could choose any arbitrary directory on my file system to sync. And that becomes to be, that gets huge. And that's just great for just one-to-one users. You don't have to share it with, with many people. Super handy. And, and also, one of the other things before we get to the open source CDN is one of the advantages it has over something like Dropbox, and I think this will resonate with you, Angela, is there's no centralized storage. It's just whatever space you have on your hard drive. So you don't have to worry about getting 20 gigs and 30 gigs or buying the one terabyte package like we do with Dropbox. Right. You just – everybody syncs and it's just synced amongst your computers and whatever space you have, that's the space you get. There's no limits. That's extremely compelling, especially for something like Unfilter, which is ridiculous. But lastly, it kind of – and I don't know about LibreVault. Maybe, Wimpy, you know better. But it, it sort of has – it's sort of the BitTorrent sync philosophy brought to a GPL3 application that's not going to get shut down. It's not going to get put behind a paywall. And it allows the distribution – of files in a way that is truly, truly unique because like a torrent, everybody who participates in the sync also becomes part of the distribution network and it is therefore its own built-in CDN. And I'm wondering, are you thinking about how to use this in a way that because this is GPL, because that means a lot of Linux users might eventually one day just have it in their damn repo, could this be a way to distribute, to, 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 to distribute project images or large files to a user base? What do you think? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I'm looking at it. So uh, looking out into the future, what I would like to do is list LibreVault in the Ubuntu Mate software boutique 
So it's a one-click install. Yes, that And great. then provide, so a new feature in the current build of LibreVault is links. So it understands that this URI construct is a link to a LibreVault key. You can click on that. It will embed it in the application. And that way you can then, or I can then make available images for Ubuntu Mate for the various architectures yeah. available. Oh, yeah. So people can just click on those and sync them. When a new version is available, they automatically get the new version. And all of the people that are carrying that LibreVault key are part of the um, collective that are synchronizing and sharing and part of the peer-to-peer network that is making those images available. And it is torrent under the hood. If you actually go and look okay. at the LibreVault config file, mm-hmm. you will see um, well-known torrent trackers ah. as the trackers that are used to actually broker the connections between your installations. Mm. Very good. You And because it's torrent trackers, of course, you could run your own torrent tracker and just change your config to point to your own tracker and you could keep hmm. all of your mm-hmm. tracking off the public trackers as well. You know, you could just use your own, own torrent tracker. So, Wes, you kind of uh, been kicking the tires for us. You've been our guinea pig. Uh, I've also installed on my machine and Rikai was the guy that had to fall on the sword and even try installing on Windows Wes, what were oh your <laughs> what were your takeaway from it? You know, you know, I mean, it is definitely early days, but I was I was also impressed. I do think this, you know, the just being able to give it a link of a key, and then especially having the built-in, you know, write only, read only, that kind of access control. Yeah, right out really of the gate, easy, right there. Um, I'm excited to play more with it. You know, I haven't replaced my sync thing needs yet, but I'm thinking it's on the list of projects to see. It's just so it seems so easy to configure and it seems like it could scale Mm -hmm. very nicely. I'll tell you a story that made me realize how important something like SyncThing or LibreVault is. And I'm I'll be honest, I'm a little more excited about LibreVault. Uh, Ange and I, you know, we've got three kids and um, there's there's new movies that we discover individually that the kids just absolutely love. And if I wanted to back up one of those movies and share it with her so that way when they're at home, they could watch that same movie. There's no or I could. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't forget about me. Yeah. Up uh, there. There was uh, there was actually recently like uh, when Zootopia came out, that yeah. was exactly the situation. Mm-hmm. And I had it. I had, I had backed it up. I had a copy of it, but I had it sitting on a hard drive. And when the kids went home, they couldn't watch Zootopia. And it would be really, really nice if there was a piece of software I could use to just send you that file and didn't go through some corporate server. Because a friend of ours, you and I both know them, um, you know, there was a file they wanted. And so their friend put it up on a Dropbox account and sent them the link and said, here, go grab it. Uh-oh. And Dropbox shut down their whole account, just completely terminated the account, shut Ouch. it down, you're banned. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And and it's it, that's ridiculous. That you know if I go out and I buy Zootopia for 40 freaking bucks for, or 30 bucks or 20 bucks from Costco and I use Make MKV to back it up and I and I that's my copy and I want my children to be able to watch it. I should have a it, it, there should be a way for me to be able to easily share those files with you. And that's what I think even if you're just an individual LibreVault promises that but you know in the term for Jupiter Broadcasting, we we distribute the unfiltered show notes and all of the clips that we play via BitTorrent Sync right now. And this is, I think, absolutely where we're going to migrate to. LibreVault looks like the perfect replacement for BitTorrent Sync for us. 
And if you're not familiar with BitTorrent Sync, it's kind of it needs to be replaced. It, it's it's kind of things have gone south. Let's just put it that way. Both Wimpy and I are we're done. We're done. So something Bible. like well, for your for your issue with Zootopia, would something like uh, Plex or uh, MB work? Uh, yeah, you know that? that's generally what we use. But of course, on my end, I'm connected to a MiFi. MiFi, yeah. Yeah, so it's not like the kids are going to very easily stream it from from my hard drive. So it'd really be best for them to have a local copy that just showed up in the kids movie folder. If I could just have a, if we just had on both our servers, we had two kids movie directories, and every time I put a, a file in there, it showed up on both our servers. It's the perfect solution. So that's that's my hope eventually. Um, but that all, of course, Ionic Badger and I were talking about it before the show. All pulls into kind of pulls into like this ultimate multimedia server setup. Ionic, I know you and I are both excited about a media service. Have you solved this moving files between multiple houses problem by chance? He's not in there. Oh, Ionic left? Ironic, yeah. Oh, Ironic. That's why. Probably because I called him wrong. I called (laughs) him by the wrong name. That's fine. Yeah, RSync is also how we actually do it now. (laughs) So it's just manual and it's painful. And LibreSync, I think, eventually will replace Dropbox Pro for us. As a company... We have made the financial decision to, to to buy a Dropbox Pro every year, and go ahead and do that again. Ange. No, do that, do that, no, do that. Do that I'm hand. Not gonna, no, no. <laughs> okay, fine. Turn the camera on. She won't do it, and we're not happy. About so, it. so you've talked about you know wanting to sort of fund open source. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, by the way. <laughs> I, I don't mind. So good man. You know, look at look at what you're spending on Dropbox Pro, mm-hmm. and turn that into monthly payments and consider contacting the author of Libre Vault and for a year making donations to the project and marking the issues because he's sort of the issues on his GitHub are kind of a roadmap of improvements and sort of direct him at the things you would most like to see implemented and see if you can, you know, encourage the developer to focus his his efforts i think the first you know, first thing would be to not limit it to five users you know at the base oh they don't have the libre vault doesn't have that yeah yeah that would that's be, huge that's an automatic right. yeah. helpful thing that by the way is a dropbox limitation yeah so i think it's 780 dollars a year to pay for dropbox it pro is. is that right yeah and so and um from like an expenses standpoint how would we do that as a business could we could we, instead of paying for a service, so when we pay for a service, is that a is that a type of write off that's different than buying a physical good? No. So when we pay eight hundred dollars for an internet service, that's like buying eight hundred dollars of something physical. Well, well, okay. So if it's a if it's a physical thing, there are there's like an amortization right down process, but right. but they just raised it to like fifteen hundred. So ah. in in the case of eight hundred, it it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So could we as a business, could we easily structure paying an open source project? So it'd be about 65 70 bucks a month. It'd be exactly $65 a yeah. month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would rather pay monthly than get hit with this $800 because we, we, we already have so many subscription services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just much easier to, to manage that, especially like with cards yeah. that expire. But, um, so here's what I did. Is, uh, this was like, what, three weeks ago we renewed it? Mm-hmm. And I think we we just we draw a line in the sand and say never again. Let me just let me just point out too that because yeah, it's Dropbox Professional. We have five licenses. I don't have access to my own company's Dropbox. 
No, it's because we need the producers in there to add. Clips. I know. So I am keeping all my um, all the artwork. Like mm-hmm. for example, I made the artwork for User Error, but just all the artwork for all the shows is stored in my Dropbox on my laptop. Right. So all the asset, all the art yeah. assets. And what we for need to company. do is sort of reorganize all of it in some sort of Libre Vault folder structure. But the problem really has been in the past is OwnCloud and right. yeah. and Sync thing have not been reliable. We've tried them. Yeah, we did. I still have OwnCloud. I need to get that off. The yeah. Computer. Well, it's it's like it's there, but it's only for a couple of things. And the problem is, is in a media production business, you just end up with this crazy amount of data. I tried. I was going to get a. I was going to get an estimate um, for the show. Again, uh, but the last time I checked, we have over 600 gigabytes of files wow. just for one show wow. that we sync around. So, <laughs> you know, like you really got to have a bulletproof product to move all of that stuff around. And the one thing I will give Dropbox is in combination with their selective sync and their web client, it has been very, very, very bulletproof. And there are literally times where I make a change and then I walk downstairs and I need to put it on the air within 35 seconds. And if it's not there, it's that doesn't work for me. That's just the reality of a live production. And Dropbox always, always meets that deadline. So LibreVault's not going so, to testing. Yeah, yeah, it will need testing. But of course, the advantage of LibreVault, LibreVault, is it's based on BitTorrent technology, so it's yeah. syncing blocks, not files. Yeah, it doesn't care right. about files. It's just hashes and blocks. And and that's important because. Uh, because it handles all of the integrity checking for you. And small changes at the block level could be synced instead yeah. of the entire file. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is a great point, Wimpy. So uh, you know, I, I I'm really ha- I'm really excited to see Labor Vault. Wim, do you do you feel, Wimpy, it's worth addressing that the primary author is I, I almost even don't want to say this, but I know I know some people listening will be concerned that the primary author is Russian. Do you does that concern you at all that your file syncing solutions? No. Okay, that doesn't bother me either. Doesn't <laughs> bother me. Doesn't, doesn't bother me in the slightest. No, some of the smartest people I've worked with in the past were from Russia. Yep. So yep, exactly yep. the same for me. And it's GPL three. Good reason to have a you know open source encrypted supported file sharing. Great point. Yeah. <laughs> Great point. And the 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 LibreVault blog is very instructional there's a couple of posts there about the detailed makeup of the config file so the skeleton config files it makes are really bare bones don't expose all of the configuration options but there are blog posts to describe all of that in great detail and there are also some blog posts there that talk about the um the crypto libraries that are used and the other alternatives that might exist and you know, talking about maybe changing some of the underlying technologies because they're more optimized. So along with the code being open and you can go and look at it and inspect it, there's also some open dialogue through the blog as well. I like that a lot. And I I feel at the end of the day, I feel a little reassured this GPL3. It's not, well, we might one day open source it like BitTorrent Sync kind of insinuated at the beginning. This is just legitimately at the very beginning, GPL3 here it all is. Here's the goal. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is also really. really and there's, there's about half a dozen other libraries that it's built on top of as well that are all open source and they're all um, linked in the GitHub now, uh, repository. Um, Wimpy, yeah, if it blows up in your face and ruins everything, will you come back and tell us about it? I will. At the moment, I'm not moving anything around that's critical. Sure. But what I'm working towards, I've spoken about it before, so I'll be brief. 
I have this roaming profile that I, I have synchronized everywhere. And I'm working to building up confidence in LibreVault so it can take over that. And that is critical to everything I do. Oh. So when I build up enough confidence to make that switch, it's passed some sort of credibility testing. And then if it doesn't screw those things up, then as far as I'm concerned, it's good to go. Wow. So you I'll, know, I'll, that's I'll a, let you know. But I that's can't wait be to hear that goes. Out. That's my dream. That is my that is my dream that I, I work on a machine here and I go home and everything's the same. So that's yeah. Woo. And I have I have that now and I've had to change the sync solutions uh, along the ways. The best solution I had was BitSync and this is really a workflow drop-in replacement for BitSync. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's really Oh, boy. Hey, I I you know what? After you've been running um Libre Vol, I say, I don't know. For, I don't know what the I don't know what the threshold is, Wimpy. But after you feel like it's like it's it's meet the this is working for me threshold. I would yeah. love to hear. I would love to hear your full setup on that. Okay. All right. Well, give me, give me a few weeks or yeah. so because it's going to take a while for me to stress test it a bit and, and build up enough confidence that I want to make the switch to yeah, something critical. I, oh boy, do I understand? I think pretty soon you'll see us experimenting probably with the unfilter show. On dist- on, because the unfiltered audience, it's a great it's a great platform because we have a backup copy of all the clips. So if there was any huge data corruption, we can recover. And it's a huge amount of data, and it's a bunch of people to sync. So it's like this perfect scenario for testing. So I, I bet yeah, I bet you'll hear more so, about that soon. So my my plan is to switch over to handling my profile exclusively, but then have a job on my main machine which makes an R-Sync snapshot mm. of mm. my nice. profile like every hour. So if it totally screws it up, I've got a recovery point. <laughs> you know, So that's my, that's my sort of harness that I've planned for this. <laughs> so I'm not going to just chuck all of my stuff at it and yeah. hope it works. Yeah. I, I do have a, a yeah. recovery point as well. Yeah, it's in, my, my plan is also to do a phased approach of – more and more critical things, starting with things that I absolutely have multiple copies of, and then over time yeah. I will slowly move to that really precious <laughs> data, whatever that is. So great, all right, I'm all in. You convinced me. Yeah, I'm really. Go this little process of JB revolution. You know, I would yeah, love not, to hear not, it. Not even a gradual. Let's just all in. You know what, Mr. Tunnell, mm. you are bold, and I hope you come back and report to us uh, because honestly, I think it's going to be if we get there. And it gets wide enough adoption. It could be a real fantastic way for enthusiasts to get latest versions of ISO images or packages or whatever. Because it's not only not only are you the CDN by participating in LibreSync or LibreVault, sorry, um, but you are also you are also fundamentally part of the RSS feed, part of the distribution swarm, part of the notification network. It's all of that built into one thing, and I love it. So uh, LibreVault, it's super early days. You can hear from all of us here, we're not really quite ready to trust our most important data to it, but it's definitely something we're checking out, and uh, we'll be following up on future editions of the show. Now, I, I, I got to tell you about my experiences with Android N. I believe it's pronounced Nougat? <laughs> N- Nougar? 
Nougat. Nougat. Android N. And I'll tell you how that's gone and why I think I need to switch to Ubuntu Touch as soon as possible. But first, I'm going to tell you about our friends at Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplug. Take advantage of the Linux Academy show's continuing sponsorship by the Linux Academy. linuxacademy.com slash unplug. Go there to register your vote for one more episode. You want 160? You hear it's a big number? linuxacademy.com slash unplug is one way to do it. But also, it's a great opportunity for you to learn more about Linux Academy platform, the place to go. Really, if you have any kind of little rough spots around Linux, the technology stack that's based around it, or you want to just put yourself in front of current technologies. We were talking, in fact, speaking of user error with Noah about learning Python and Ruby. It's a great example of where Linux Academy can help you bring you up to speed. Anything that might make you more money, get the attention of your employer, make that client a little more inclined to go with you, or just challenge yourself. They have courseware on it. The entire Linux platform and all of the cool technologies built on top of it. Self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux topic, or really DevOps topic too. Like there's, they've really branched into there. They got Azure, OpenStack, AWS as well. Learning Paths, which are a series of courses and content planned by instructors for specific types of career tasks, which I find to be particularly valuable. The hands-on experience. If you're a little test anxious like I am, I mean – I got to tell you, I've, I've never been a good cert passer because I just get all worked up about these fake scenarios. That's why hands-on experience with the Linux Academy Labs really gives me the experience to move forward. Like, I'm ready. I've done it. I've actually pushed the buttons. That's super nice. They have practice exams and quizzes. They have availability planners. You can plug in how much time you have. Even if you're super busy, you got three kids and a podcast network, trust me, you can find time at Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug with nuggets. You can go into just deep dives into specific areas. They got certs too. If you want to go in for the certs, you're just going all in. You got to get that on your resume. They got great courseware for you. Downloadable comprehensive study guides, instructor help whenever you need it. iOS and Android apps to help you whenever you need that mobile experience. Lab servers that spin up on demand and cert training that is above and beyond anything you've ever possibly thought of. I really have to recommend Linux Academy at LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged go check them out it's a pretty cool platform backed by linux enthusiasts developers and educators that came together to create something unique in the industry linux isn't just a checkbox on their feature list it's what they're all about linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and a big thank you to linux academy for sponsoring the unplugged program go check them out go try them go log in go see what i love about it too Stuff that in the past seemed like impossible, I could never actually achieve it. I could never spend the time. I can break it down individually into chunks of time that I can wrap my head around and actually accomplish. And that's what I love about it. Linux Academy. Thanks for sponsoring. All right. So this week is the big week. Android N hit our faces. And, of course, everybody's got their write-up. Android Authority, Android Police, Ars Technica, everybody's got their write-up on Android N. It's good. Everybody loves the new Doze features that have been improved. Of course, the multi-window tasking, all that stuff, the notifications, all good. We talked about some of it on uh, Tech Talk today. And I've been running on the 6P. I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely an improvement over and Marshmallow. But I, some of my primary issues that plagued me with Marshmallow continue to plague me with Android N. And that is Doze kills Bluetooth audio. Oh. I'm sitting there, I'm driving, I'm 30, well, I'm 20 minutes into my drive, say, all of a sudden I start, eh, uh, get, cut, uh, eat, every podcast. What's I those? hate that. 
Yeah, Doze is the new Android feature they launched in Marshmallow and then doubled down in Nougat. And that is depending on like if the phone's upside down, face down, or if you're walking, or if it's like midnight. There's all these conditions that Android is taking into account. And if it thinks it's you're very unlikely to be using your phone at this time, uh, it goes like a, it down or yeah. something. Or yeah, wow. Which has really improved the battery life. You'd think they would have uh, fine tuned that for podcasting and, and audio <sighs> and Pandora. Like if it if, sucks, yeah, it that, sucks because I'm sitting there listening. <laughs> Actually, you know it's funny. It's it. You know who it, you know who it affects the most out of everybody I know. Hmm. Wimpy, Wimpy's sitting there making a great point on the Ubuntu podcast, and all of a sudden, every other word he says starts getting dropped out. And I'm, I'm not because because you know he speaks at a, at a gentleman's pace. Like I'm not. Like, I don't like. Is he like abbreviating his speech? Like at first, I'm like I, I start losing track of the conversation, and then I realize it's dropping. Every few words from the Ubuntu podcast. This is just as I'm driving in today. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And this is the same problem I have with marshmallows ever since Doze was introduced. And, uh, I, I, you know, marshmallow seems to be good. Nougat seems to be even better. But I think it's just, it's just time that Chris gets off of Android. And so is there no way to disable it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think I could go in and say, like, whenever this application is running – don't save battery life. Well, is, it, but Android is it really... has such crappy battery life. Okay, I was that... just going to say, is it even saving you that much battery life? No, it does. It, okay. It, 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 it is effective, yeah. Yeah, it does. It may, it may, I can I can now go like two days without charging my phone if I push it, which is, oof, that's big. Whoa, unheard yeah. of in Android. <laughs> I know, but it kills the Bluetooth audio. And so I have been, from a distance, looking at different options. I won't lie, iOS feels very attractive because I've been there before and I know that I, I, I get what I get and I don't complain. You know, you just get what you get. Let me ask. You're saying you're specifically saying Bluetooth. Yeah. If you had headphones plugged in. That's what I do. But then I lose all but the it's controls. The same thing. Well, no, I don't have that problem with headphone jack. And I that's what I use. I got a little like retractable headphone cable yeah. and I use yeah. the auxin. But yeah. then I lose all of the controls on my steering wheel. So I don't get uh, like skip ahead, uh, like right. or any or or skip back or right. or volume. I like I lose all of the controls on my steering wheel, it, which you know not a big deal. So I just do the headphone jack, and that's what I've been doing for months and months right. actually. But uh, it has kind of got me going through my head. Like, gosh, I, I think I'm just I don't like the way it performs. I don't really enjoy some of the interface elements, and I don't really like the fact that they are tracking me. Like it is like a sensor in my pocket. What about turning on, like, uh, isn't there a way to make the screen not turn off? There are a few apps I could use. Like, and I, force it to stay away Yeah, I, I, I think I could actually, like, I think I could exclude Pocket Cast from all Doze power management. But mm-hmm. then at the same time, I'm well, while I'm driving, I'll be burning through my battery. Right. I know. Yeah. So it's not like does it, it Does it happen when you charge in the car as well? Yeah, the the uh, the dropouts do. Yeah, in fact, Wes, it almost seems like it happens faster, which is oh odd. wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not gonna lie. I've been looking. I've been looking at the MX4. I've been looking. I've been looking at the Ooh. OnePlus, and there's this guy out there who's been giving me a hard time about it for weeks and weeks. Uh, and I, I I won't name names, but Wimpy, uh, you've recently switched. <laughs> <laughs> You've recently switched to Ubuntu Touch. I think you've been on for a couple of weeks. And I know that podcasts are a big part of your workflow and, and all of that. I'd be, I, I would really love to hear your thoughts because I know you and I have reflected on how Android doesn't quite fit for us. And we Ubuntu Touch 
is sort of the perfect solution because every now and then we just want something a little extra. We like the flexibility of the platform. We know some of the folks behind it, and it's an alternative to Android that is functional. And I, and you've been actually living in it for a couple of weeks. You've got multiple devices. I'd love to pick your head. Just go in there sort of like mind meld style and tell me what's it like to live as Wimpy with an Ubuntu Touch device. Okay. Um, it took some weeks of research to figure out what the apps on Ubuntu for devices were that could replace or be alternatives or equivalents to what I was used to on Android. Sure. Yeah, I bet. And, and by and large, I've been able to find replacements for that. And where it gets a little bit icky is things like there are four or five different versions of Google Plus, for example, for mm. Ubuntu Touch. And are they all kind of repackaged versions of the web app? Um, sort of, kind of. They're, they're, so what you're starting to see now is people that are starting to use more of the facilities of QML around the web wrapper to introduce more features into what is essentially a web-wrapped version, but also doing clever things like using different agent strings in that mm. oh. web wrapper ah. to expose modern versions of the Google Plus UI. Right. So I see. What, I've, what I've been doing is as I've been trying out the several different versions of Google Plus, for example, is rating each of them based on my personal requirements so that the one that I think is best gets the most stars and the others get diminishing star levels with my rationale as to why they're not as good as the other option. So I've gone through that process. And for things like Twitter and Facebook and Gmail and Google Plus and, you know, all of the stuff you need to do, obviously I don't have a WhatsApp problem because all of my family are on Telegram. So I don't have that big, you know, um, stopping block that mm -hmm. is in front of many people. Um, I I have a completely functional experience. Um, I've got a few gaps in what I need, and I've I've decided decided at the at the outset I would find the apps that best met my requirements. Uh, and for example, where there where there's an app that isn't quite good enough, instead of publishing a duplicate app. I would reach out to the developer and work with them to improve the existing app that's in the store rather than create even more versions of the same thing because yeah, I don't sure. think that's very helpful. Right. So I've reached out to the author of the Pocket Casts app and we're going to work together to make a slightly refined, refined version of Pocket Casts mm. for Ubuntu Touch. Now, uh... How how much is it actually targeted for Ubuntu Touch versus um, a modified repackage of the web version? So the current version of Pocket Casts is just a wrapped version of the website. Which, which is not uh, bad, the web version, actually. Which is very good. And um, the only drawback to that is that um, it was created about a year ago so it doesn't have the keep the screen on keep the player moving so as the screen blanks the podcast stops so i've contacted the author and said these are the improvements i would like to make and we're going to work on that and produce a refined version that you know works properly and because i'm a pocket casts user at the moment it's easier for me to use that than try and 
move to Podbird, which is a native podcasting app for Ubuntu for devices. And what I need to do there is send some feedback to the developers of Podbird to say, these are the features that I feel need adding, refining or improving in order for the native, you know, Podbird application to be, um, you know, viable Hmm. because listening to podcasts on my phone is very important to me so full disclosure right now all of those things i said i can do on my mx4 the one thing i don't do is listen to podcasts i still have an android phone which i keep in the car and when i'm driving to and from work it is that device that is connecting over bluetooth to the car audio system to play the podcasts and that's for two reasons one I've got a podcast player that works and hmm. two it's got bluetooth that compare with the <laughs> with the yeah, car yeah and I've only got one out of the many ubuntu touch devices I've got there is only one that compare with the car and what's curious about that is a few months ago they could all pair with the car and now only one of them can hmm. so there's been some sort of regression there and I haven't had the opportunity to di- to dig around and and identify what what's going on but you know there are rough edges, but I don't have Android running anymore about my person on a on a day-to-day basis. That's very cool. And um, I'm able to do all of the things that I could do before with a few caveats. So I'm, I'm going to – one of the little projects I want to work mm. on is write an app for Buffer because uh, that's something I used to use quite extensively on Android. And I think that that can be uh, – neatly created using uh the ubuntu framework it shouldn't be too complicated and it should provide a a totally analog experience cool you know i uh i think this is this is the perfect moment because Ange is here and uh she has without equivocation rejected basically everything icloud she still plugs her phone in over a usb cable to sync all the stuff over her photos her music and it's a huge part of her workflow and it, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to auto update or auto upload her photos to iCloud. She doesn't want to sync her music through Apple Music. Nope. And and you're looking at this and you're like, I, you, be honest. Do you feel like you're like on borrowed time with that platform? To, to I use, do. Yeah. yeah. And and when when I hear Wimpy talk about it, I I what I think about for somebody like you is even if like everything else doesn't apply about the freedom or the or the platform or or how they design it. The fact that you could maybe find a workflow that you feel comfortable with when the other platforms are kind of forcing. Yeah. It's kind of appealing, right? Yeah. And it's early days still, but uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll let you know when it's, when it's when it's ready to switch. Yeah. There's some fixes coming in OTA 13 that I think are really really interesting. So there seems to be a lot of focus on refining what's there at the moment and um the last since ota 10 it's really come on a long way so ota 9 i still wasn't convinced i could actually use it as a day-to-day device from ota 10 Mm. i could because in ota 10 i could copy and paste between applications for example so you know that was three or four months ago (laughs) not being able to do that prior to then was really a i can't use this day so that was Uh, that was what you might call a game changer (laughs) yeah so you know i've got two apps in the ubuntu touch store at the moment and one of which is um LastPass mobile It's by no means as comprehensive as the LastPass application on Android, 
but it does mean that when I need to log into things, I can open up LastPass, bring up the password, highlight it, copy it, and then paste it into the thing that yeah. I want to authenticate with, right. which I couldn't do four months ago. So, you know, the fact that that's possible it is just that that was really that was the moment where I thought, right, I really need to investigate this more seriously because I could make this work for me now. I've I've always felt like the place that would be the most successful for me would be on the tablet first and then the phone. So I want to get to that. I also want to mention uh, Minimax. Uh, he has a question for you, Wimpy. All of that. But first, before we go any further, I got to say uh, thank you to Ange for stopping by. She's got to run to go pick up the kiddos. But, uh, Ange, thank you for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. Keeping us grounded. Yeah. Wonderful to have you. Ooh, and, uh, wow, all the love. I know. And you can hear more from Ange in Tech Talk today. Go listen to this week's episode. Boy, this week we had a Kickstarter of the week that uh, is going to sit with me for a while. It's going to sit with me. I <laughs> get it? Get it? Because yeah. you remember? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Wow. So, thank you for being here, Ange. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, all right. So, Wimpy, it's, it's not just the phone. I mean, I know the MX4 is your daily driver, correct? But you're also trying the tablet experience. Have you noticed... Be honest, Wimpy. Does it work better as a tablet? Um, does it work better as a tablet? It feels I do like different... the it feels like that interface that the whole Unity Eight interface is begging for a tablet UI. It just it you know a little extra real estate, but still mobile. Seems like the perfect combo. Like maybe something on the BQ. Mm. No, I I don't know. I mean, I I use I have used. You know, when I was using Android, I used the phone and the tablets differently, and I continue to use the phone and the tablet differently. So I've got a BQM10 uh, tablet, and I also have a Nexus 7 that's also running Ubuntu Touch. Mm -hmm. Um, The BQM10, I'm mostly experimenting with that as a, could this be a laptop replacement? Yeah, exactly. And... The recent advancements with Libertine make that very plausible now because Mm. it's now possible if you've got a little bit of um, knowledge about how to, you know, exercise um, the command line utilities, you can create containers of your favorite legacy X application and run them on containers on my tablet. Yeah. So, uh, and and there's a there's a nice guide that somebody wrote recently. Um, I'll get a link in a moment that explains um, how Libertine is used uh, to create containers of your app. So, for example, creating a container of Mumble is very straightforward, or Audacity, or GIMP, or whatever it might be that you want to run on your tablet, so that you can um, have a more desktop-like productivity right. experience. Ooh, like so actually create something on, on your tablet. Oh, it, 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 will, it will effectively make the container that runs that app with a launcher, so you can just start GIMP or Audacity or Mumble or whatever with Ooh. icons, you know. Mm. That's, so that's, that's really very interesting. The Nexus 7 is kind of my device that I use just for sort of browsing and looking at stuff casually in the evenings. So, you know, when I'm sitting in the front room or cooking, sure. that's that's the device that I have to hand because it's more convenient to use than a phone and it's easier to, you know, look at. Um, and, yeah, for for that sort of stuff, you know, looking at YouTube, catching up on podcasts, um, dealing with email and telegrams and all of the rest of it. 
it, it all works just fine on the tablet and um, and phone. It, it certainly works better. The MX4 is a slightly bigger screen than the the Nexus 4, which I was using before, and the BQE5. Um, and certainly having a bigger screen is favourable. It's certainly much yeah. easier to use with sure. a larger screen. Sure. Huh. You know, I I know it's just I, I can't help but uh, think of myself, but I, I picture a day when I could actually publish something like user error completely from the tablet. That would be phone, awesome. Right? Now, Wes, what would it take for you to be able to use something for work, like something that could actually get your day-to-day job done? What do you need from a tablet? And do you have a tablet today? You know, not really. There, There is a iPad. I think it's like a couple generations old by now that kind of floats around the house purely for consumption, but it really doesn't see very much use. Um, I think for work, you know, that, that Libertine stuff, that would go a long way. Sure. I think also that, uh, you know, last week we were talking about the improvements to the terminal. I think that would also go a long way. If I could have a reasonable, you know, a reasonable experience using some desktop apps and having, you know, SSH and just a friendly Linux environment right by my side, I'd be willing to cut it some slack in other areas. Yeah, me too. Me too. Exactly. And I and I don't think that is – it is – I mean we can't deny this. That's a niche. That's a, that is absolutely. Absolutely. But it is an industry now and there is a lot of us, men and women, in, in the hundreds of thousands that need to do that. Uh, you think about every small business that has more than 100 employees. They have somebody – that could qualify. Think of every large corporation. I mean, that is a massive, massive amount of users that is absolutely worth targeting. And it could just grow from there. I, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to buy the, uh, um, the BQ M10 <laughs> when it went for sale. I couldn't get it. The, the, the page was all kinds of errors and it was just impossible. Um, and today I, I sit here with the Android uh, N6, or uh, I'm sorry, the 6P. And I think to myself, I would love to be able to take uh, what I would love to have the maybe it's maybe this is a 2018 thing, but w- what I would love to have happen is sort of like I can download ISOs now for general PC hardware. I would love for Ubuntu Touch for a large range of great Android devices to be available, and I and I realize that would take a bunch of community um, commitment and interaction and and and, and work, but God. Dang it! Would it be cool if I could just go get the greatest and latest Nexus device and have a have a a, a good solid, you know, bet that within two to three months of the next Nexus twenty sixteen device coming out, I could probably get an Ubuntu Touch image for it, and for the life of that device, that I could be run it right. And then that that's all I really think it would take for me. Or, and Wimpy, I know how you feel about this. <laughs> If I could get my hands on that MX5 hardware, something that's a real flagship device, mm-hmm. how's performance? That means Chris's right? stringent standard. Because I am a bit of a performance bigot, Wimpy. So, yeah. and you're on the MX4. I don't really know, but my 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 rough understanding is it's, it's somewhat equivalent to the Nexus 4, and that seems like it would be ancient. To no, me. no, no. So I've got a Nexus 4 <clears throat> and the BQE5. Yeah. Okay. This this MX4 is um, head and shoulders. Uh, above those in terms of performance when it's running um, Ubuntu Touch. But yeah, is that is that Ubuntu Touch or is that the, is that the hardware? Because I, I, might, think... I might be basing my hardware requirements on potentially bloated and uh, Android requirements. Okay, so definitely, uh, so it's uh, it's the hardware basically that makes it better. Um, okay. There there are definitely improvements that could be made to. Ubuntu Touch to improve the performance and perceived 
responsiveness of some of the UI. Um, and I th- think t- talking to Popey, you know, there are some well understood things that need to happen and there are some technical challenges as to, wh- as to why they haven't been addressed yet. So I think that will come in due course. But the better the hardware gets, the better the experience gets. And the MX4 is significantly better than the, the Nexus 4 and the, um, the E5. And my understanding is that, that this pales in comparison to the Pro 5, which is rarer than hen's teeth now. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I, 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 re- I was wanting to get and um, went on holiday <laughs> around the time they were released and thought, oh, I'll get one when I get back. And they were all sold out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now you can't find them for love nor money. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to load Android on the, I mean, if you want to get the one that has Android loaded on it, um, it looks like that probably works for loading the initial image, but there could be over the air update issues potentially. So, yeah, so as best as I've been able to determine reading some of the guides that are available for that, you can buy a Pro 5 with the international firmware version of Android, which is required because the Chinese versions, you can't unlock the bootloader, but the international oh. versions you can. Okay. So you have to have one with the international firmware. You can then uh, flash um, Ubuntu onto that Pro 5, but so far, what I've read, and I have, haven't researched it very carefully, there seems to be um, some difficulty in flashing the Ubuntu recovery image onto that device, which then means that the over-the-air updates right. uh, won't apply automatically. You have to go into the recovery and um, extract those um, manually. That kind of kills the fun. So that's why you haven't gone that route? At the moment, unless... Because uh, they're quite expensive... And I'm not prepared to risk that unless I'm fairly sure of some success. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. I just want to yeah. buy it with Ubuntu yeah. preloaded. <laughs> and, and you were you were talking about you know other devices. There's a, a website called um, ubports.com. Yeah, um, it's one of the community members um, uh, runs that site, and that's crowdfunded. And there's a list of devices there that can run Ubuntu Touch. Oh at various stages of completion and if you want to uh, see ubuntu come to one of those devices then you can back the development effort for those devices and that's where he will focus his attention and most of the nexus i think all of the nexus devices are in there and some lg devices and the one plus one plus x one plus two so there's all sorts in there oh i should talk to that guy because that sounds exactly like but I, I just got to figure out which Nexus device is well supported. Like the 5X would make a great, great Ubuntu Touch device, I would think. Yeah, so it's in that it's in on the list. Uh, hasn't actually started yet, but it's at priority three. And uh, the Nexus 6P is also in the list as well. hasn't hasn't actually started yet. So, you know, but there's someone there who's uh, and he's been sponsored by DigitalOcean. I see as well. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I will mention too, just as we kind of wrap up here. Uh, I guess ZTE made the mistake of asking people what they want. Oof, never do that. And uh, now they've heard it. And uh, they've even suspected that there was some sort of fraud involved. So I encourage you not wow. to do – yeah, I, I encourage you not to fraudulate this. But uh, there is a uh, a poll going right now over on ZTE, which if you've ever looked at uh, Newegg, for example, some really nice ZTE devices are out there. And and they were asking for input from their community about maybe what kind of next generation projects they should work on, et cetera, et cetera. And OMG Ubuntu uh, has generated some attention. 
towards this initiative, and I think that's why they got so many votes. And uh, they're looking for possible ideas for 2017 that are, quote unquote, reasonable. And I just want to give a shout out to this community effort here because holy smoking crap did this uh, write up. Not only is it totally rocking the ZTE voting right now with 88 upvotes, but uh, I2000s who created this post did a true legitimate like um, Fortune 500 level proposal on why ZTE should create an Ubuntu Touch device. It's really impressive, yeah. Yeah, you saw this? I mean, he goes it's quite through... the breakdown, different scenarios, different options for them to consider. It's um, pretty yeah. well done, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it, I, would, I, would, I would buy the shit out of this device if ZTE did this because I've looked at some of their devices on Newegg that are unlocked and been kind of tempted by them because they've got front-facing speakers. They seem to have reasonable packaging for the price. ZTE has con- consistently caught my eye but not quite – cross that threshold for something I'd actually be willing to spend my money on. But if they shipped a you know, Ubuntu Touch device, I hands down would buy one. And if you want to kind of just vote in that general direction, um, I'll have a link in the show notes for you to, to go voice your opinion. I just think this is super important. Uh, he says, a brief summary of the idea is ZTE should provide the following options to people to choose when selling a phone model. Pre-installed Ubuntu Touch as the primary OS. Pre-installed Ubuntu Touch as a secondary OS alongside maybe something like Android or, new Ubuntu, or no Ubuntu Touch installed and only something like Android installed. Uh, he talks about also including something like a USB Type-C connector um, and, the advantages, and the advantages of convergence and all of it. And I just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant post and ZTE would be a fantastic manufacturer. And I've, I've, I've heard – I don't know, Wimpy, if you've heard these things, but I've heard some rumors that perhaps BQ might not be doing another Ubuntu Touch device. Have you heard that, Wimpy? I've seen it on Twitter. I don't know what the um, authenticity of those claims are, so – I don't either, and it, and it seems like it seems like they've sold as many as they can manufacture of the Ubuntu devices. So I don't I don't know about that either, but maybe we'll see. Yeah, it's a bummer because at the moment you can't buy an Ubuntu phone anywhere. No, in fact, unless you, unless you go to eBay. <laughs> if 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 today the MX5 Pro were available for purchase, I think just for Linux Unplugged and Linux Action Show alone, it'd be worth me picking one up just to try it. But um, every time I go to their site. They're sold out. Yeah, yeah. They they had a a run, and I my understanding was they had an allotted uh, production run, and once they were sold out, they were gone. So it sounds like I see one of those experiment type things. Uh, Mini Mac, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, my question to Wimpy would be: What about multitasking? Did they face the problems they had before? For example, when I was listening to music on Ubuntu Touch, I tested it on a Nexus Five, and then wanted to open the browser, music stopped. So multitasking at the time I tested it was not really at a good level. So that specific example of audio playing, there are facilities in the SDK now to continue playing in the background. Good. And um, I know Podbird, the podcasting client, supports that. And there's another app called Cloud Player. They both continue to play audio when you switch away from them and go and do other things. So, so long as the app has been updated to support those facilities, yes, it can be done. And my second question would be, are the Ubuntu Touch images all based on the same Android base or does it depend on the different devices they run on? Uh, 
uh, I'm a little bit not sure, but my understanding is each device has got a slightly different Android base origin. So this is why some of the devices mm. can support the Miracast wireless display mm-hmm. and some can't, for example, and why some can do fingerprint authentication and some can't. So I believe there is a correlation between the device and the Android version that it can support and mm-hmm. therefore what the functionality that it can expose is. But next time Pope is on, ask him that question. I know he's um, uh, much more up to speed on that than me. Hmm. I've noticed that. What I can say, oh, sorry, what I can say, Chris, the Nexus 5, and I think you got one of these, mm-hmm. the Nexus 5 is normally a good device f- to test some of these images. I run Safish OS, for example, for mm-hmm. the Nexus 5, mm-hmm. and now it's based on Lollipop, and this was hmm. a huge advantage for for Safish OS. And so I guess if they port, uh, if they have a Lollipop base now for Ubuntu Touch, it would run rather good. You know, I I think this is more poignant than ever. We started this segment with the release of Android N, and it's a pretty solid release. You know, if you like Android, it's just Android even better. But if you don't like Android, it's everything you don't like even worse. But at also, at the same time, if you're a Nexus 5 user, Wes, then you ah. just you just got dropped from support where Ubuntu Touch is coming along. And they're, yes, I did. They're kind of, you know, just picking up momentum. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you know, I can understand it, but it is a little disappointing. I mean, uh, there's lots of ROMs to try. I am kind of just holding out on this phone uh, until the next Nexus line drops. We'll see when that is. Um, but yeah, it does make me way more incentivized to try something else. And uh, I played with a bunch of touch on here probably like a year ago, and I haven't visited it back. So maybe I'll uh, give that a flash here soon and see yeah. what it's like. So mm-hmm. I just posted a link in the chat mm-hmm. room, which is to oh, the you. U- UB Ports Nexus 5 build. Uh, they've got green ticks in everything except for Bluetooth support. So the Nexus 5 version can close. support everything except for Bluetooth. So it is very close. Wow. And when I got my first Ubuntu Touch device, it was about 14, 15 months ago. And things have improved massively since then. Yeah. You know, isn't it um, when you come from Android Wimpy, isn't it kind of novel all of a sudden to just see constant improvements to your OS like on a reoccurring schedule? It is. And, you know, that's that's kind of tainted because you you look at Ubuntu Touch having, you know, I've been using Android since 2010, 2011. So, you know, that's a lot. You know, Google have got massive resources they've been able to throw <laughs> at Android and, and make it this dominant platform. So you look at Ubuntu and you think, oh, you know, there is there is these little paper cut type issues. But then when you go and look at what the upcoming um, releases are in the next OTA, you see so many of these paper cuts being addressed now. Um that's exhilarating um, in a sense. It is. And, you know, part of me wanting to do this wasn't so much about running Ubuntu Touch, but it was to recapture some of that um, spirit and enthusiasm yeah. I had for Linux way, yep. way back when I first discovered Linux in the in the mid to late 1990s. And that sort of pioneering spirit and it's not perfect yet, but it could be. And you can be part of the solution, even if all you do is run it 
and tell the developers, yeah, it could be better wow. if you did this. Right, so well that's said. part. That's part of the reason why I'm doing doesn't this. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? And I, uh, okay, I want to say two things. First of all, before we go much further here, it's not like I'm all of a sudden drinking the Kool Aid, but as I have become more comfortable with uh, Antigros and Ubuntu Mate and Fedora as as my go to desktops, I'm it, it is freeing me up conceptually to just let go of the Ubuntu default desktop and let them focus on mobile because it doesn't affect me anymore and I don't have a horse in this race and so I can now look at the Ubuntu Touch project from a more dispassionate perspective because in the past I I carried my baggage. I carried the baggage of you sons of bitches are working on this mobile project (laughs) instead of my desktop. How dare you? And I came with that bias towards Ubuntu Touch. But now, and, and, and Wimpy, I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up uh, your proper butthole. It is generally because of projects like Ubuntu Mate and honestly the GNOME desktop that I just don't give a shit what happens to Unity really personally that I, I have been able to step back and just watch this new effort of theirs from a completely new perspective. And I look at this and it is totally exciting for me. And so that is number one. I just want to mention that's kind of my perspective on, on, on this overall. But number two – we all we all have concerns, I think, to some degree about the privacy of using an Android device or an Apple device. We all have concerns to some degree about how to install applications on our device outside the channels that are pushed by the platform. And we all have concerns about being able to modify our device in a way that suits us. And so in, in that regard, as a technology enthusiast, Ubuntu Touch has always managed to check those boxes for me. And I'm, I now I sit back and I, I really think it's, boy, it's a matter of hardware for sure. And I'm still waiting for the perfect hardware. But once that comes along for me, be it the 5X or, you know, I'm looking right now over at UB ports and it appears that if, if I were to donate Bitcoin in the equivalent of $510, which for me would be less than one Bitcoin right now, uh, it would all of a sudden the Nexus 6P would become a priority for them. Uh, that's less than the next smartphone if I were to buy it unlocked for me. If I could take my Nexus 6P and donate $510 equivalent of Bitcoin to this project and have a and maybe one day have a have a version for the Nexus 6P, then I could just continue to use my current hardware until that comes out. But yeah. but aside from from all of that, I think the point that you made, Wimpy, is what excites me the most, and that is it feels like, um. The early 2000s, the late late 90s, where it's not ready for everybody, but if you're willing to sort of get in and get in the mud a little bit, you can make this a viable platform one day for everybody else by banging on the rough edges, commenting, giving feedback, maybe even making bug fixes. It is sort of what drew me to Linux a decade ago. And do you find that to be sort of the position you find yourself in now with Ubuntu Touch, Wimpy? Absolutely. And I'm by no means a pioneer here because mm-hmm. there are people that have been running these devices as their main phones for 18 months or more now who are far more um, advanced in how they're putting apps together. And there's some quite sophisticated apps available now. So um, there's one called Rockworks, which is available from the Open Store. And I have complete um, support for both my Pebble watches 
with Ubuntu Touch using ah, that. Ah, really? And the experience on my Pebble Watch is exactly as I had huh. it on Android with no um, no shortcomings whatsoever. So, uh, you know, there, there are... There are not many, but they're the the ones that exist. The native apps are are getting very very good now and are are solving real problems. And it it feels like it's really got momentum. And there's there's some talented people behind it. And but yeah, there's yeah, still some good work nice. to be done that you can have maybe yeah. some influence in, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, even if it's just commenting on the apps in the app store to say this Twitter app is better than that Twitter app because, you know, and uprate the ones that are good so that other people don't have this dilemma as to, well, which of the several Twitter apps should I install? Um, But also, um, I think there are a few proprietary applications Mm. for Ubuntu Touch, but most are open source. So there are issue trackers that you can go and find and you can actually have dialogue with the developers directly, which of course is difficult to do on some of the other platforms. So just, just by sharing your ideas, you can have some involvement in shaping individual apps and, and the device as a whole. Hmm, That is, you know, for those of us who are enthusiasts, um, that's sort of a delightful era for a new platform and it's rare because once the platform becomes established and lots of users it sort of passes and you know it's your chance to be sort of a uh, a hipster before it's famous <laughs> but in a way that is empowering for those of us that want to move away from the google platform and you know privacy concerns and uh you know pioneering spirit aside mm-hmm. obviously the main reason i've done this is because i want to be an ubuntu touch hipster <laughs> I don't believe you for a second, but the other two reasons I do believe. Yeah, uh, and I I really am thankful that uh, you're joining us again and give us an update. And it kind of makes me wimpy. I'll tell you, if there's a way to make it possible, if the MX-5 becomes available again, I think I'm going to jump on it. Is or or wait for a Nexus 5 image to really kind of get Bluetooth ironed out and then jump on that and at least try it for a bit. Because it really is for me, the perfect time to jump in. I love this phase of a new platform as long as it has just enough stuff. Yeah, just enough stuff that I can get by day to day. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. I, I, you know, using Android N and uh, iOS nine, shit ton of problems still. Tons of problems. Totally unbelievable. The shit that doesn't work on these platforms this long into it. I sit there and I think to myself, how could they not have caught this? And if I'm going to feel that way anyways, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to sit here and shake my head and go, damn it, Google, why didn't you think of this problem? I might as well be using something where I can submit bugs. I can have some kind of discourse in the evolution of the platform and I can at least be there when when there's a rational explanation why some of these things don't work. And I know that seems like a weird cognitive dis- disconnect from but it, it, it generally it, it drives me crazy to use these more modern platforms or, or feature complete platforms or whatever you want to call them and they still have some of these fundamental usability issues. At the end of the day, I just need certain base functionality and the rest is all gravy. And so I just am waiting for the perfect hardware device to come along. And and maybe maybe I need to reassess my requirements because I'm looking at it from a perspective of an Android user. But I don't know, Wimpy. You tell me. 
Do I? Uh, is there a one-to-one performance ratio between Ubuntu Touch and Android, or can I get away with maybe a little less hardware using Ubuntu Touch because maybe I'm not running Java, etc.? Um, no, not really. Like I said, there are some interactions with Ubuntu Touch, the user interface, that are slower than the hardware is capable of so you want the best hardware if you've if you've if your nexus 5 is spare definitely put the current image for the nexus 5 on it it's a community port so it's not as robust as the officially blessed versions yeah but it does give you a flavor of where things are now and you know how your nexus 5 performs with android so you can make that comparison and some of the how do you characterize it it's it's just the way ubuntu works at the moment and i'm 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 sure this is going to get ironed out in the not too distant future but when it does you can so there are some apps that are just c and they bypass some of the framework and those applications when you start them they launch instantly like there's your finger's not off the screen and they're running but a lot of the apps that are using the framework they have the little spinner that gets them going when they get started up so you have to sort of go into it knowing you're not going to have uh this immediate snap 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 type experience yeah Yeah. i think on the pro 5 it's much better because that's a much much beef beefier machine yeah yeah um but it's the hardware that's doing that rather than the OS. have you just kind of tangentially related have you seen the announcement from the cute project of cute light uh i have only in passing not really in detail that might that might help with some of that because you know let's be honest if you're if you're using cute based applications there's a lot there and if there's something like cute light that could come along and sort of they're kind of they're focusing cute light more of the internet of things type devices uh but you could also see it working on something like ubuntu touch and perhaps Think of think of QT Lite as more of a minimal build from base up of Qt functions, whereas the traditional uh, Qt environment is huge. It's got everything you need to do everything you could possibly want, including touch support, which is extremely useful. But it also means that when you load the applic- – when you load – I would think – I'm totally speculating here. But when you load a Qt application for the first time, there's a lot of other things in the background you have to load to support that, where Qt Lite could – sort of tighten that up a bit. I don't know a lot about it, but I was just reading about it today, and it seems like it could be the perfect thing for Ubuntu Touch. And then you combine that with the fact that Canonical has recently become a backer of KDE EV, which is the commercial entity behind KDE. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Ubuntu has also got support for Cordova and mm, yes. Re- Re- React something or other, mm-hmm. uh, another Java... That's the one, yeah. Um, JavaScript, you know, libraries for making uh, native apps. So that word needs to get propagated because there are lots of people that have created their apps using those frameworks yeah. that could come over yeah. directly without any um, any messing about. You know, it's interesting. We've talked about uh, LibreVault and uh, Ubuntu Touch, and they both have the big, huge you know, marquee scrolling or HTML flashing tag warning that this is early days on both of these Ubuntu Touch and LibreVault. At the same time, 
I think for our audience, they're both getting to the point where if you kind of have a pioneering spirit for this particular thing, be it your file sync or your mobile device, and fully acknowledging that both of these things for some people are critical day-to-day devices that must be completely flawless. But if if some of you out there have that pioneering spirit for either one of these types of technologies, it's for both of them getting to be time for that type of person to jump in. And that is super exciting for somebody like me because that's exactly the type of person that I am and I think of a lot of our audiences to watch this stuff from this part and go, boy, you know, I'm really like for me, Wimpy, I'll be completely honest. I am thrilled that for the last couple of weeks you've been running Ubuntu Touch because I, I, I get updates from you on how it's going and I can I can kind of project how it would how that would translate for my experience. And you're making you're giving me bated breath. You're making my mouth water. You're making me want to switch. And I think it's super exciting. And it's funny because I don't know if either one of you, you or myself, would recommend, or probably Wes would recommend that people go deploy Libre Vault or Ubuntu Touch for their daily driver today. But it definitely is ready for a certain class of us or a certain type of user. And Wimpy, just to kind of wrap it all up, uh, would you kind of give us an idea of the range of devices you're trying it just so that we kind of have a full picture of your experience that way when it does blow up? In, I mean, <clears throat> if it ever does blow up in your face, <laughs> uh, we have an idea of what you test on because I was kind of impressed when you kind of shared it with me. Okay. Um, I've got a Nexus 4, a Nexus 7 tablet, a BQE5 HD phone, the uh, Meizu MX4, and the BQM10 tablet. Damn, son. Whoa. Yeah, yeah that's quite and, a lot of devices. You know, if you if if you do have that pioneering spirit and you want to experiment, then consider getting yourself a Nexus 7 2013 or a Nexus 4 off eBay because they go quite cheap now. And they are officially supported devices for Ubuntu Touch. So they come direct from the canonical channels and you can be involved in actually testing these things and trying them out. You know, that, you don't have to make it your daily device. You know, I didn't for over a year. I had a, a you know, one pound SIM in my Nexus 4 for months and months and months experimenting with it before I determined it was time to, to make the move. But, you know, you can participate at that level. Yeah. Well, shoot, you're making me want to try it, especially on a wow. tablet. I know, right? Wes, I'm excited. Have you tried on any of your devices? Just the Nexus 5, but oh, yeah, it, that's was, right. it was a while ago. Yeah, so yeah, it was. It'll probably be a much better experience. Mm, yeah, maybe when the next Nexus device comes out and you got the 5 sitting around, you could try it out and give us mm-hmm. the unplugged take. I think I will. I like it. Well, there you go. That sort of brings us to the end of this week's discussion. We have lots of links to all the stuff we talked about. Don't forget... If you're like me and you'd love to see Ubuntu Touch on the Nexus 6P, the ubports.com, uh, uh, devices.ubports.com specifically, has a uh, funding page on it. That'd be, that'd be pretty damn cool. And if you're getting finally to the end of this extremely long episode of the Unplug <laughs> program and you want more, go check out User Air. Episode 1 is over at jupiterbroadcasting.com right now as we record this very episode. Wes, thank you for making it despite real-life diversity. Appreciate it, sir. Hey, thank you for – I love being here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? If the folks at home wanted to join us, it turns out we have a diabolical plan. You could join us over at jblive.tv on a Tuesday. 
Oh, what time, you ask? Ha <laughs> ha, clever of you. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, where we have robots that automatically adjust it to your time zone in real time before the page even loads. You Thank give you, us- robots. Thank you, right? They don't, and I think they probably run Ubuntu Touch, too. I haven't Ooh. confirmed it yet. I just... Definitely. I just got them on eBay. Also, uh, linuxactionshow.reddit.com if you want to give us some feedback for episode 159 or submit a topic. And don't forget you can join us in our virtual lug. Get more information in our chat room at jblive.tv. And we'll see you right back here next week. Wimpy's Vault. <laughs> That's a good oh, title. No. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's good, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, look at that. Look at that text highlighting. Yeah, thanks to Ange for stopping by. She had to go because we went so long. But uh, That was great. That was a lot of sorry, fun. Sorry about that. No, that no. It was a bit of an epic. No, no. You know I love it. You know I love it. So uh, now we just we just have to name this thing over JB Titles dot com with the new Bank suggest with the new fancy updated website thanks to uh, Rikai and team the JBot's got some recent refreshes actually um, and I can actually say this now we go into some qu- quite some detail about the uh, changes to JBot and how we do that and the code and the community members involved in user error episode one it was really fun. So I employ you. You have um, multiple disks that you're going to be pulling in and out and mismatched sizes and all that kind of stuff, right? I don't know. I, I, I Probably just because of the necessity of budget over time, that'll have to be how it works. But I would like to yeah. start with a base set I think, of storage. I think that's overlooked with ZFS. Sorry, British. ZFS. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because if there's like a hidden cost to an upgrade, when you think, right, I've run out of storage, you need to add a whole new pool or replace three, four, five drives all at once. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I fill up a disk, I just want to buy another three terabyte drive, whack it in there and call it good. Mm -hmm. Um, And to do that, I use something called MergerFS, which presents all of the drives in my system under a single mount point using a Fuse file system. Um, And I'm running it on a uh, C2750 ASRock Atom board. Yeah, so a Fuse-based union file system that sort of brings them all in under one mount point, huh? Yeah, so and all you open. do is you modify your mount point in FS tab. Sorry, whoever I talked over. Uh, right, you modify your mount point. You modify your mount point um, with one line, or you just do a mount command, and it will uh, add the drive that you've just plugged in huh. into the the fuse uh, file that um, is system great. mount. And I've been using it for. I mean, I tried MHDFS or whatever it's called. I tried uh, another Union file system, and then. After about 18 months of lots of ghost files and messing about, I, I settled on MergerFS about a year ago. Yeah. And since then, Chris, it's been absolutely perfect. No performance and, um, penalties, really? Or there must be some, right? Because this is a fuse file system. It uses a bit so. of CPU. Yeah. It uses a bit of CPU, but I have eight Atom cores. And when I'm transcoding a couple of Plex streams around yeah. my house, I don't notice any difference yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. So. Oh, 
And to dovetail with that, there are two plugins for Open Media Vault that support those technologies so that you can grow your file system without having to employ traditional RAID and you don't have to have matched size disks for growth. I forgot the best bit. MergerFS doesn't stripe file systems across the drives. Yeah, Each drive exactly. has its own individually readable file system. So That's even right. if you exceed your redundancy level, you only lose the data on the drives that failed in excess of that level, and you can still read. You plug that drive into any other Linux box and just read the data. You know that'd be exactly. that'd be a perfect way to like have some drives for TV shows that I don't really care about on this disc that's not as redundant too. Because I've thought about so, doing like these are my cheaper discs, these are my more my more important keepsakes. On on Open Media Vault, the plugins you want to look at are Greyhole and SnapRaid. They provide yeah. those facilities that. Plus uh, one badges just um Snapraid, huh? Boy, this is good stuff, guys. Yeah, you need to set up you need to set up a cron job for the sync of the parity to run every night. Um or something like that. Otherwise you're effectively running the data that day doesn't have any parity protection. Um or you can force a, a, a sync if you like. But I spent probably the best part of three years getting down to this final Docker, SnapRaid, and MergerFS on top of Debian, which in my case I chose to roll myself. Um, but you know it will work on top of Open Media Vault just perfectly with plugins, with a GUI. I don't Man. need any of that because I can just SSH Woo! from my phone into my server, and it it just don't. And this, GUI, and you know, I've I, I remember now that I'm looking at uh, the Greyhole website. I have also looked at Greyhole as, as potentially doing a segment on Lass about it, and I never even thought about setting it up for myself for storage. <laughs> That is slick. So snap it raid or snap raid or snap raid.it if you want to go to the site and grayhole.net for grayhole, which is an application that uses Samba to create a storage pool of all your available hard drives and allows you to create redundant copies of the files you store in order to prevent data loss when part of your hardware fails. Have you had any inclination at all to try out the, uh, I'm not sure how you say it, Nileus N1 email client that has the hosted component and uh, is sort um, of electronish? I did try it when it was first announced. I created a Gash um, Google account mm -hmm. to hook it up to, so mm -hmm. I could, but basically, so I could just see what the UI was like and use it and all the rest of it. Um, and every so often, I kind of update it, uh, and I haven't, I haven't done what Wes has done, which is host my own middleware for want of a better description right. you know that piece that does the brokering between mm -hmm. the client and your back-end servers i've just used their hosted platform because it was a um disposable account um i'll tell you what i what i found yeah. what i mm -hmm. what always draws me to thunderbird is how 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 much i like the enigma gpg plugin and whenever i want to have a good secure emails setup it's such an attractive, easy-to-use, yep. simple, straightforward system that works well with my workflow. And I think it's finally been beat by N1, um, simply also because ah. it's been easier for the audience to find me on Keybase. And so that tends to be what they sign against. And N1 has one-check one integration with Keybase, and it, 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 is, it has taken that ease of use to the next level. And, and from what I can tell, appears to be a pretty secure implementation. I mean, all of that's being done locally in the Composer. So, so the the advantage of Keybase being easy discoverability of your keys, yeah. So you can have seamless email and exchanges. They, well, and you know, I kind of like their. They have an interesting approach to verifying who you are. You know, because one of the things that's really kind of the weak spot of GPG in reality is 
the web of trust works best when you can go to a, a con or a fest or a or a live event, and you know everybody there can do a little key exchange and hi, I'm so and so. This is really me. Here's my key. That works well, but it doesn't work at scale. And what Keybase allows you to do is connect to other online presence that are well established and trusted, and then by building up several of them, and also in some cases, I think in mine, I'm using something Bitcoin related too. Like there's something there that's it's pretty concrete. That, uh, it's like three or four for me different. These are obviously really Chris Lass's account. So it gives the audience some confidence. Now, you have to have certain faith in Keybase IO and assume they're setting it up right. But those implementation details, to me, seem to be interesting concepts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, it's just finding the time. I, I'm interested in Nihilus because I think it looks like a nice um, uh, user interface. Yeah, and I like their ability to tag uh, emails for follow-up so I can I can technically have read them and process them, but I don't have to take action on it immediately. I can come back yeah. to another time, and that's also nice. And then yeah, it has it nice. has interesting – and I didn't even realize it was – because I just – I guess it's just turned on by default and some mail clients support it – is it does read receipts by default. And what's interesting about that is it's it's also integrated in with the desktop environment notification. So I'm off doing something else, and I just get a quick GNOME – notification that so-and-so has read the email I sent them, and then it slides away. And I, you would think that's – it's actually kind of neat. It makes email feel a little more 2016. First of all, the fact yeah. that I'm getting a GNOME notification about it, but also just how seamless that was. I didn't really have to do anything. Yeah, that's a good point because, yeah, I, I, I always – I emails that have got read receipts with deep suspicion when I receive them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I agree. I didn't realize it was on by default. They also by default put a little uh, pr- promo for the cl- email client and the signature. And it's a little tricky to get rid of it because when you go to the signatures configuration, it has nothing listed if you've never created one. And the only way to get rid of the default one it puts in there is by creating oh, a to signature. Oh, make one. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, very nice, guys.